Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Bex. And me Eason. And this is our episode all about Dance of the Dead. Yes, episode 8. Now, Dance of the Dead is one of the earliest ones to have been filmed in the original production order. It was one of the first three or four episodes, mm-hmm. I think, in that original block. As we've said several times, we're uh, doing these episodes in their original UK broadcast order. So it does come here, but actually... Uh, not only was it filmed earlier, but there are lots of elements of it which do place it early in the in the mythology of the prisoners' adventures in the village, I think. Yeah, so a lot of people, when coming up with their own order in which to watch them, have put this at sort of number two or three or four. Um, I think that the main reason why they shifted it so late in the televised run is because there's a lot of location filming in this in Port Marion. Mm. And they wanted to space out the episodes that had a lot of location filming in across the series because the ones that were filmed later tended to be much more studio bound and they've kind of shuffled them up a bit and mixed them up. So you you do get a strange sense watching this episode where he keeps referring to the fact that he's new there and you know people say that he, he doesn't understand the rules yet. It, it doesn't make any sense if he's actually been there through all of the adventures of the first seven episodes. But saying that, it does go quite well um, next to Many Happy Returns from the perspective of how much Port Marion they show. Because in the previous episode, we've had lots of these wonderful shots of the village when it's completely deserted. Hmm. And then now we're back into showing the village in full swing with all of its residents partaking in this wonderful carnival event which is taking place in the village and um i think yeah it just shows you know another side of 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 the village and they they make use of port marion as well as you know as a place that is occupied uh by the villagers in the same way that i think they made it just as much a character when it was empty in many happy returns and you see all those shots of uh number six waking up and looking around and you it's completely empty which is very surreal mm. there is one really glaring error in this script which i will point out later but where they'd obviously intended to film it in one place in port marion and then actually filmed it somewhere completely different (laughs) and i it's it's one of those things where you might not spot it and unless you've actually been there and walked around and thought hold on a minute that's not where they filmed it yeah we shall come to that so as always uh what we're going to be doing is uh talking about what happens in the episode what we like, some of the things we think are interesting. Um, and after our sort of recap and review of uh, Dance of the Dead, we're then going to have our special guest interview, which this time is with Fiona Moore, who is the co-author of The Fallout Guide to the Prisoner. Yeah, so we've got that to look forward to. But in the meantime, let us crack on with Dance of the Dead. Another lovely day. So rise and shine. Life for living. So the opening credits, the new number two this time is Mary Morris. And unusual for the way that they have used female number twos in the series, uh, this is revealed up front. It's not um, a character in disguise or a character in another um, plane of the prisoner's world who is revealed later on as as number two uh it's mary morris from the very start you see her in the chair 
and you see her do her little speech um, with uh, number six as well. Yep. It was written by Anthony Skeen, who also wrote A, B and C and Many Happy Returns, which we've just done. And we also have The Return of Don Chaffee as well. Yes, directing. And it's weird, because although we say The Return of, you know, when it comes down to it, I'm not sure what episode he's originally put together in, so he maybe just probably did all three of them together. <laughs> so it's the middle of the night, some kind of nefarious experiment is being conducted on number six. Uh, you see that in the control room, a uh, scientist, number 40, is watching through video camera of some kind of electrodes being put on number six's head. And he's being woken up in his bed, surrounded by other white-coated goons uh, who are there to conduct the experiment. Quite how they're doing this is never really explained, but they're putting him on the phone with a character who we will come to know as Roland Walter Dutton, who is evidently another prisoner who is under the control of the village. And they're trying to convince Number Six to divulge state secrets by making him think that this is just a normal phone call with his old friend Dutton. Mm. And Dutton is clearly like under the influence in some way. He's not in the state that he's at at the end of the episode, certainly. <laughs> you know, I think we've, we've spoken about this a few times, but whenever there's a character in the village who has a name and not a number mm. uh, that's always a that's always a particularly bad sign um what i think is initially quite cool here is that you have the same thing happening again and again which is whenever six goes to sleep um, something bad happens there's all you know it's a wonder that he even bothers anymore you know he must wake up and check himself and needle marks and work you know trying to work out what's happening um but it is strange because there is there are things in this opening which very much imply some of the themes that we've seen a lot in earlier episodes. And on one hand, you know, they would have been new if this had been the second or third episode that had mm. been aired. But here, you know, we've seen a lot of these ideas again and again in previous episodes, whether it's the experiments that are being performed on Six when he's asleep, um, the fact that they seem to use somebody who may be from number six's past to coax him into revealing some information. It just feels like some of the ideas that they're presenting here, you know, they probably reflect maybe some of the early themes that they were trying to bring into the show. And they and if this was an early episode as originally planned, maybe this would have been introducing a lot of these themes earlier on in the series, rather than at this point it seeming like it is merely crystallizing a lot of the things that we've already seen before. Yeah. I like the fact that uh, Dutton, you always see him in his black and yellow striped mm. jumper and they give him the black and yellow phone to use. Mm. Colour coordination, even <laughs> when you're torturing somebody. At least it's not the giant red phone. <laughs> so what what they seem to be doing is they're, they're feeding lines to Dutton to get number six to talk to him. And he's claiming that some the committee, we don't mm. know what kind of committee, wants number six to confirm to to Dutton some project headings, mm. projects that they know about. And he says the committee wants this from you, me, Arthur and the Colonel. Yeah, and we've had the Colonel appear before. And as we've discussed, it's unclear if this is the same Colonel who has appeared in previous episodes all been mentioned. We have uh, the Colonel as featured in The Chimes of Big Ben. Yeah. We've had the Colonel as featured in... Uh, many Happy Returns, yeah. which is another Anthony Skeen episode. Yes. Um, again, there's just these continual 
uses of admirals, majors, generals and colonels. And I think they just throw these things in now and again. And I think we shouldn't maybe look too much at, at whether these are the same characters. Except, of course, in the cases when they might be the same characters. Yeah. I mean, I, I would guess that maybe it is the same colonel as in Many Happy Returns, simply mm. because Anthony Skeen wrote both of mm. them. But it, it's interesting that they're asking for project headings because project titles wouldn't normally tell you anything about them. Mm. They're meant to be deliberately non-descriptive mm. so that you can talk about a project without revealing what mm. it is. Um, but maybe they're just trying to get the first you know, the the first chipping away of his armour, that if they can get him to start to reveal these seemingly innocuous things to someone that he knows, mm. then maybe they can start to chip away at him. Yeah, but Six isn't having any of it, because even in his... Uh, I presume he's... Well, he's not drugged, is he? He's clearly just under some kind of mind control or mm. mind manipulation uh, state uh, whilst he's been... Uh, experimented on when he's asleep and he's been woken up to take this call um, he says you know you must not ask me about any of this and I think it just goes to show how strong his own willpower is that you know on one hand we have a character who's being fed lines who just repeats these things in the form of Dutton and on the other hand we have Six who is being asked questions and even in this state where he's probably in a submissive state of revealing information you can't break that, well, his his will or his mind at all. Mm. You know, he knows even then that he has to keep all this information quiet, and he doesn't seem angry, but he just knows it's not something that he should be revealing. Yeah, you see him really straining with physical effort of resisting talking about it. Going back to the other episode that Anthony Skeen wrote, A, B, and C, the way they're feeding lines to Dutton to try and get number six to reveal something, it reminds me of the way. Um, number 14 and that was feeding lines to B in the dream mm. to try and get number 6 to reveal something Yeah. so either it's Anthony Skeen putting these same themes into his own episodes or maybe there was some grander plan to you know maybe develop this side of the um, of the villagers plans a little bit more and that there would be actual repetitive elements uh, of you know what they were doing to show that they had a, a repertoire of, of methods that they would use and occasionally they would come up again and again. Yes, but the experiment is ended uh, before any permanent harm could come to number six <laughs> by number two who storms into, into the room and demands that they stop. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful because so far we've had these very aggressive, blustery, uh, middle-aged male number twos who seem, seem to be you're behaving almost like petulant children. They get really frustrated. They throw tantrums. They just get very angry all the time. Um, even when they're not directly interacting with Six, everything he does really winds them up. And I love the fact that from the very start of this episode, Mary Morris is a very, very different number two. She's kind of quite cool and collected, but I think she's very cold. There's something deeply uh, sinister about somebody who is relatively calm and has extreme confidence in you know knowing that this is not the way to proceed with number six and the fact that everyone is scared of her i think makes it all the more worrying because she doesn't need to raise her voice or get angry with people she just tells them in a very calm collected you know slightly aggressive manner 
you know, this is not going to work because clearly other people have tried this before, which does mean that this episode does take place after maybe he's been there a little bit, which does conflict with uh, some of the things that Six says later. Um, but she also says he'll die before talking. He's not like the others. Mm-hmm. Now, firstly, that means that they know that it's in his nature not to reveal anything. But also like this, this slightly sinister reference to the others. Mm. On one hand, you know, it, it goes back to the idea that the village was there for a particular purpose. The others, though, that kind of implies that maybe this number two herself has been involved in, in these other people and what they've done to try and break these people or get information. And clearly, this is also stating that Six is far more robust than anyone they've come up against before. But she seems to think that she has the experience to know uh, what to do, how far to push him, which ironically was something that uh, Colin Gordon's number two didn't know. You know, he didn't, you know, he like he just lost it every time he was drinking milk all the time. He was getting he was getting so worried about things. Yeah, you you never see her lose her cool at all. Not around number six, not around anybody else at all. And it it just reminds me of the contrast with when Colin Gordon sort of rose up in their big globe chair in the middle of the night. It was an insufferable man. He's always walking. Mm. They would always get so wound up. But she she never really seems to let anything get to her. Yeah. Or at least doesn't let it on. Yeah. Um, and in this scene in particular, you can see the reaction of um, the doctor and also the, well, the other guy who seems to be acting almost like the supervisor. Mm-hmm. Although in this episode, I don't think Peter Swanick appears as the supervisor. No. But you can see he know you know he gets he gets kind of really worked up whilst the doctor is getting worked up as well. Everyone's losing it a little bit, and she just walks in and says, you know, stop this. Yeah. She, she's very adamant that that he he can't be damaged. He has to be won over because he has a future mm. with them, with whatever organisation it is that's behind the village. Um, I mean, they 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 clearly they clearly think that he can be won over in some way, mm. however long it's going to take. Um, but also that he would be so valuable if he was won over. I mean, it, it does make you think as what number six would be able to achieve if he actually turned and became number two in the village mm. it's quite terrifying actually because... well he almost did in free-for-all <laughs> um, which is also strange because in free-for-all he got that power and he used it to try and free everyone mm. uh, so it's clear that they they know that he is somebody who um who maybe does have the ambition and the desire to to be in control in some way but with a view to try and turn the village on its head. Whereas, you know, they must know so much about his past that makes him such a valuable asset to them. Um, you're right. It, make, it makes you kind of wonder what, you know, what they would even use him for, because he must have, you know, a special set of skills that he can, he can use. And also, don't you think that there's something weird about him? So, well, about their saying um, that they don't want to damage him, because that has come up before, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because if, if if it was just about the information that he has in his head, they could have extracted it and killed him in the process, and it wouldn't have mattered. But they're they're so reluctant to damage him that his his worth to them in the long term must be more than the value of the information in his head. Mm. And getting the information in his head is therefore just step one in the longer term plan of getting him on their side and part of their organization. Mm. And. 
in terms of these repetitive themes that have come up in the previous episodes, um, yeah, all well, a lot of the number twos have always said that they they don't want any harm to come to him. Where they put it bluntly that they just don't want him broken. Mm. So six wakes up again in this cottage. He seems to be slightly confused again when he's woken up and somebody's been experimenting on him. It's always unclear in episodes whether he remembers it or not. Mm. Um, but clearly he's very uneasy every time he wakes up. You've got the lovely Tanoi announcement greeting everyone in the morning as usual <laughs> with Fenella Fielding saying, rise and shine, life is for living. <laughs> Which is ironic given that it's mostly an episode about death being for the dead. Mm. And interestingly, when he goes and looks out into the village, it's empty. Mm. Uh, which is something that we've just seen in uh, in uh, Many Happy Returns. Um, although there he saw it as a chance to escape. Here he must be thinking, given when this is meant to be taking place. I mean, you know, he's just like used to seeing this. It's, which is also strange because he does make reference to him being a new member of the village. And yet when he looks outside, he, it doesn't strike him as odd that he's here. Yeah. And he... He has a chat through the television with number two, which is similar to, to what we see in Free For All. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, where, where the television is a communication device as well as just a, a TV mm. to watch. Where number two, it, he, he asks number two, how did I sleep? And she says, sound as a bell. <laughs> so evidently he knows that he's being watched all the time, including mm. in his sleep. And of course, he didn't sleep sound as a bell at all because uh, he was woken up and had his mind messed with halfway through the night. So uh, we then go to uh, the village itself and we see, is it a mini moke? One of those little taxis? Yeah. Uh, but, with, like, as a, but it has a little trailer on the back of it. And uh, there are uh, three or four village maids on the back of it who are all dressed in what we'll come to see later as uh, carnival dress. Yeah, so they all turn up, not in their usual maid uniforms, but in fancy dress. She's got a, a kind of, is it like a, a sort of, is it Georgian? Is it Jacobean? I, I, I don't know. So, some, some, some kind of... It's from oldie times. Yeah, it's an oldie times dress. <laughs> yeah, he, he makes a joke about time travel. Like, mm. oh, is time travel now possible in the village? <laughs> um, whatever period of time it is she's supposed to be from. And then when when she jokingly or half-jokingly says, oh, I've got a mind to report you, he says, I'm new here, which is the first of many, many references <laughs> to him being new here that are scattered throughout episode eight, apparently, <laughs> of the show. Yeah. And as she leaves, uh, the postman appears. And again, going back to this being one of the earlier episodes in the order of production, he arrives uh, wheeling a penny farthing. So this would have been, I think, probably a way to introduce the the penny farthing as a as a vehicle in the village as well. Because you would have known it from part of the credits and all these different mm. things. And they must have thought this is something that's going to feature a lot in the show. Um, but we don't really see it used that that frequently. But here it's like being used by the postman to deliver things. And what I like the fact is uh, you know, he's got this special delivery. And uh, when Six collects the package, the postman asks him to, to uh, sign for it as number six. <laughs> and there's just this moment where you can't see... Uh, number six's face but you can tell he just he just doesn't care <laughs> and he takes the package and shuts the door on him <laughs> how, how would you even sign a number <laughs> it's a terrible signature like oh no one can afford the way that i write number six <laughs> but their delivery is the invitation 
to the carnival, the village requests number six to attend the carnival and the dance. <laughs> and immediately we cut to uh, the fun goings on in the village. Uh, loads of people against completely populated again. You've got all manner of costumes and umbrellas and wonderful sunglasses. The butler is out with his black and white umbrella. Um, and during this large parade that's going on, we have like a town crier kind of character who is ringing a bell and alerting everyone to this big announcement about uh, the carnival, which is going to take place. Yeah, and watching them is number two and the black cat that we see around the village that we saw in Many Happy Returns as well. And she's explaining to number six that every year they have this carnival, everyone gets in fancy dress and they have a ball. It's an annual event, which Mm. is like the annual event of of the election free fall as well. Yeah, but all these things only happen once in the series. So it's, it's always unclear whether these things are actually annual or they just they give it an arbitrary time scale in order to perform these little games and ruses on him. Because often they are, they are often designed to break him, aren't they? It's not mm. like they have any benefit to the villagers, although that's how they're sold. They, they have a discussion about whether or not he has to attend. And she says, you can do what you want as long as it's what the majority <laughs> wants. Which, those two things don't go together. That means you can't do what you want. You can only do what the majority wants. Mm. But there's there's never any sense as to where this majority consensus is coming from. About half the time, the people don't look that thrilled about having the carnival at all. <laughs> and then they go over to um, some tables where there are there are women in these three identical red outfits uh, with gold braid on the hats mm. that I don't think we ever see before or again. No, they they kind of look like airline stewardesses or something. Yeah, yeah it's very strange. And she says something about no game is worth playing if you can't win. Is it, I know that's not a very English attitude. Mm. And number six responds by asking if she is English at all. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, whenever somebody lets their guard down, you can tell that six is always, he's always switched on. and he's, It's almost like he's trying to see if uh, he can get some information out of somebody by catching them off guard. Um, you know, whether it was... I think the uh, the comment about uh, international cuisine in, mm. in free for all, um, things like that. It's you know, you know he always asks a very a very precise question at the odd moment just to you know just to see if he can get an answer. But certainly in this case, uh, number two is, is is properly on the ball and just going to laugh it off. Yeah, and she suggests that what he ought to do is find a woman to invite to the carnival, uh, and. He insists on going and talking to number 240, who is sitting at a table nearby, watching, Mm. or trying to make it look like she's not watching, but really watching. And number two says that that's quite unsuitable, Mm. but of course he goes and does it anyway. Maybe because it's quite unsuitable. Uh, So he goes and strikes up a very uncomfortable conversation with her. (laughs) He starts talking to her, asks her how long she's been in the village, and she responds with, Questions are a burden to others, answers a prison to oneself. Mm. So the last time we actually heard that was, or saw it, I suppose, was on uh, on the board of the Labour Exchange back in Arrival. Mm. So again, placing this episode quite early on, you would argue that, um, you know, they're just reinforcing some of the, the themes and, and uh, slogans of the village that had been introduced in the very first episode. Yeah, and she... She uses the line, I think, twice in the conversation. Mm. Um, and 
essentially tries to get away from him as quickly as possible. Yeah. And he makes reference to, even to her, when it's it's one of those weird moments when you're unsure if he is uh, playing the village or the villagers playing him. I mean, mm-hmm. he actually says, um, in response to uh, number 240, you know, do you think that uh, I'm playing her game by her number two? Mm-hmm. Or she is playing mine, and he he's sometimes quite happy to let let people in the village know that he is uh, aware of what's being done to him. I think it's it's disingenuous to do anything otherwise, mm. because you know if everyone is against him, they all know that he is aware of it as well. Um, but anyway, uh, number two forty clearly is a little bit disturbed by this conversation. He kind of wants to get out of there. So uh, he lets her go and uh, she leaves and she actually goes to the town hall Mm. and number six uh, follows her. And interestingly, so obviously a huge amount of the episode free for all took place in the town hall Mm. um, as it's the the home of the town council. Now that episode was, I think, the the fourth in the series. Um, But this time he it's seems to be the case that Six has never been to the town hall before. And although he watches number 240 go straight through the doors or the gates and go in, um, when he goes up to it, he seems to meet like an invisible force field of some kind that mm. prevents him going in. You, have, you hear the strange kind of crackly sound. And as he looks inside, he sees a, a statue um, at the entrance uh, just inside. He looks at it and... It's strange. I don't really understand what what that's really about. But then uh, somebody from the village comes up to him and says, um, it's fussy about who it lets in. Yeah. Which is very, very sinister for somebody just to make a reference to, well, an invisible force field in the first instance. And secondly, to kind of treat the town hall as something which is actually alive in some way. Yeah, that it has sentience and decides for itself who it's going to let in and who it won't. And going back to sort of earlier episodes as well, the last time... Um, in terms of the continuity we're seeing here, that he met a force field was when, um, I think it was in The General, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, when he had to try and gain entrance to the uh, uh, the education committee's uh, private suite where they were making their decisions. Yeah. So one wonders if, again, this episode would have introduced the ideas of having force fields in the village um, you know, if it had actually uh, run earlier in the original um, series order. So number 240 is now safely inside the town hall and is watching him from the observation room together with uh, a female supervisor, I can't remember her number. Mm. Um, But they're discussing the fact that he tried to follow her in there and they watch him as he wanders off outside, um, finds a black cat again and then he's back in his cottage and he's taken the cat with him (laughs) and is, is feeding it some milk. Much to the consternation of the maid. Yeah, she's not happy with the fact that the cat's in the house. She says that there's a rule against animals. <laughs> and when she threatens to take the cat away, number six remarks that she might get scratched if she tries. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it, again, it's not that... Her objection isn't that it's unsanitary to have mm. a stray cat in your house. Her objection is that it's against the rules to have a cat mm. in the house. Not that there's a particularly good reason why the rule should say you can't have a pet. Um, is it simply that those are the rules and that's what it says? And curiously, when uh, the maid asks number six where the cat came from, uh, he launches into a, a very interesting set of questions, which 
I think kind of go into the the mechanics of the village, which he's trying to figure out. Again, he kind of uses these unguarded moments to try and get information. In this case, he he says something, you know, like, you know, how do things get here? You know, like all the grocery supplies, like milk and potatoes and ice cream. Uh, he wants to know if they come come at night or something, as if they're like secret deliveries of things. Because, you know, because clearly, you know, the village is, is stocked with everything you need. It's meant to be cut off from everything and completely self-sufficient. Um, and the idea that it is completely cut off from things obviously comes into play later on when they introduce the body that washes up um, uh, from the outside world, as it were. Um, but she just refuses to answer any of this. And he says, oh, you know, um, you know, does it happen at night? And then as she leaves, he kind of mutters to himself, I've never seen a night. Yeah, which again makes it impossible for this to really be happening after all the times when he's been <laughs> roaming around at night, like in the general in free-for-all, in uh, times of Big Ben. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So whilst he's kind of clearly a bit frustrated with things, he um, uh, he goes over to the TV with a pillow, and as he holds the pillow up to the, up to the screen, it produces a tremendous amount of uh, static or something. It's very, mm. it's very weird. I don't know what, you know what the point of that is, but it, I think it also just proves it's not a, it's not a normal television, <laughs> and he knows it as well. And then he notices that someone is putting a, a flower box filled with flowers <laughs> outside his window. And he has a proper grumpy old man moment. He says, suppose I don't want any flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently everyone has flowers for carnivals. Yeah, so again, this is an episode which is all about these these rules that everyone in the village adheres to. And as Six says a little bit earlier on, uh, these are rules that, that do not apply to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he clearly is, you know, is is being very defiant in the face of these rules, which places his behaviour, I suppose it's, you know, it's quite, well, it's not as nuanced as it becomes uh, in in the later episodes that have preceded this. So again, it does, it does place things quite, you know, quite strangely in the episode order. But he just clearly is, is being defiant, but not completely sure um, you know, how he fits into this. And all, he, all he's got is, you know, all the other villagers just saying that the message of this week's episode is that tomorrow is carnival. <laughs> sleep. 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 Later that night, about half past ten, <laughs> for the first time in history, no, uh, <laughs> uh, he gets delivered some kind of evening warm drink. <laughs> Um, which the uh, the maid, different maid this time, won't tell him what it is, only that it's good for him. <laughs> uh, and he isn't interested in drinking at this time. Uh, 240 is watching him on the big screen. And number two is leaving her office and bumps into the scientist in the corridor. And she's off to have a conversation with someone presumably mm. some kind of authorities make some kind of report and the scientist is a little bit concerned that she's going to mention his unauthorized experiment in number six yeah so earlier on in the episode he was he was pretty defiant saying you know that he knew what he was doing with his experiment he was going to get number six to talk now clearly he's come around to the idea of uh what he was doing being wrong but also clearly it was unauthorized and he's worried about the consequences of it and Although she doesn't seem that threatening, he is clearly very worried about what number two might might do or say about him that would uh, influence 
uh, I suppose, the repercussions that the village might have for him for doing something that could have essentially broken uh, Six. Yeah, and meanwhile, 240 is using some kind of remote control to dim all the lights in uh, mm. in Six's cottage and ma- manipulate his environment in order to try and get him to go to sleep. Yeah, now until this point, we've never really seen much about physical controls of what's happening in his cottage uh, by uh, people in the in the supervisor's room. So it is interesting that maybe this was done to demonstrate that this was all one big experiment in the cottage, but, you know, about uh, number six, and they were manipulating things and showing them manipulating things just revealed that it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a strange thing. It was being done by people and they were doing it to, you know, control him. I mean, all the bits where he would, um, you know, like like the radio would come on, for example, or, or you know, there were all these things that were happening that, were, that seemed to be automated uh, in his cottage. It's clear that these are being controlled all the time. But the fact they don't return to this again, this idea that people are doing it, maybe they wanted to have it as kind of a a big brother thing where you never see who's actually doing it, mm-hmm. but all these things are being done. Maybe here they felt it was too explicit to show that he had an actual observer who was doing something like this. Yes, number six is continuing his attempt to escape his his cottage mm-hmm. during the night. The front door is locked. Um, he can't get out. The cat is lounging around on his bed, seemingly quite content there. But he's decided to stay up. Instead of going to bed, he sits down in a chair and the light above his chair starts kind of pulsating mm. with this this voice, sleep, sleep, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> to get away from that, he opens the window and jumps off the balcony. <laughs> Now, the the balcony that you see him jump off is not the same building as the building where the entrance to his cottage is, in Port Marion, that is. They're two different buildings. Oh, yeah, because the obviously the, the front of his cottage is now the shop in Port Marion. Mm. And you go on the side and there's, that, there's a, a bench and a couple of chairs around the back of it, isn't there? Mm. Number six going out the window like that. It's interesting to me because there's a lot of overtones in this episode about um, fairy tales, about the otherworldly. You have number two dressed up like Peter Pan later on. (laughs) And going out the window is how Wendy and her siblings go to Neverland. Ah. Yeah, I'd never seen that. I mean, I think the the Peter Pan reference is is obviously obvious at the end, but I'd I'd never noticed that there was a there was a there was a Wendy reference here. Yeah, so 240 alerts number two to the fact that uh, he's gone Hmm. from his house. And number two is in... um, The Green Dome. The Green Dome. And the cat is there. Yeah. Which is... So there's clearly, like you're saying, lots of strange supernatural overtones here. But the fact we have the the teleporting cat is is very strange. Because it was lounging around on his Hmm. bed... At the point where he decided to go out the window, mm. and now suddenly it's all the way across the village, um, curling around on the uh, on the table in front of number two. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it could just be a continuity error, but actually, it's it's very sinister in light of what the what the cat may actually sort of represent, because clearly he, you know, the cat comes to him and he takes it in, and looks after it, 
a little bit, but clearly the cat belongs to uh, number two in some way, or at least given the previous appearances in uh, Many Happy Returns, it is, it is part of the village uh, in some way. So it's odd that he would take the cat in. Um, it's even odder that the cat can just jump around locations itself. But as he's kind of running on the um, on the beat, as he's running on the uh, on the beach, they send Rover after him. Mm. Um, one thing I didn't like about this iteration of Rover is although they show it quite a lot, sort of moving along the sand, it's one of the few times when you can see it's a balloon <laughs> because you can see the the knot in it yeah. uh, where it's tied. And yes, until now it's always been this strange amorphous blob. And although now we obviously know that it was it was a weather balloon that was used as the prop uh, for Rover. Uh, I think it's one of the few times we actually see it being used like that. Um, it looks a bit. It looks a bit odd. I think they could have taken a bit more care with that one. Yeah, number two isn't too concerned about the fact that he's run off. She says it'll test our efficiency mm. in keeping track of him. But she also says that he'll eventually go back to his room. It's the only place he can ever go. Mm. It, it's a bit like he's a an angry adolescent who stomped off in the night going oh hey mum <laughs> and then uh, she says oh it's alright he can spend the night in the garden if he wants to he'll have to come home eventually <laughs> yeah. but it is the first of those many references as well to the idea that this is this is a location which is cut off and he himself is is stuck here so uh, the village itself rarely tells him that he will never leave they simply allow him to find out for himself all the time that he's trapped there. But the fact that they say it so casually makes it all the more sinister. Yeah. In a, a sort of fit of pique, he decides to spend the night just out on the beach <laughs> rather than go back to uh, to his cottage. And when he wakes up in the morning, I, I like the fact that he's woken up by seagulls. So evidently the seagulls have got there from somewhere. You don't normally hear seagulls mm. in, in the air, even though it's on the ocean. Mm. He finds that there is... A body of a man randomly washed up on the shore, and there's nobody else around. No one seems to have seen it. Doesn't know where it's come from. It's just there. Uh, but yeah, he, he gets woken up by the seagulls to find this dead body. And it's strange that the body is—it's kind of strangely contorted. It's like it, there's no explanation really now or even later in the episode for how this body got here and whether it is truly a body that's been washed up here through some accident or even nefarious means on the part of the village or it's all part of a ruse to get him to find the body because if they if they're watching him and they know where he is they could have put it there whilst he was asleep Mm. knowing that he would wake up and find it but he goes through uh some of the possessions on this corpse i think he finds some photos um, in a wallet um and he also finds a miniature radio as well and that's what kind of makes you wonder exactly who put this body here because it's one of those moments where you think that the village might be starting to play their game with him, which is to give him something that makes him feel like he's a little bit more in control, that he has some link to the outside world that would make him let his guard down, maybe try something stupid and then they will turn that on him a little bit and do that thing where they make him think he's got the upper hand and ultimately take it away from him. Yeah, it's an incredibly waterproof radio case. That's what I can think <laughs> of. It's, it, the radio has made it through its ocean voyage intact. Mm. And, and indeed, most of the stuff in the wallet is pretty much still intact Yeah, it's, well. almost, it's designed to be found, I think. And what's also 
weird about the body is that I know it's not exactly the same, but from just kind of a vague overview, it's not a dissimilar uh, body size and shape to number six himself. So it's weird. That he, it's just very strange. He's waking up having fallen, well, having fallen asleep. And as he's spoken about earlier on the episode, you know, he just always sleeps. That's all he remembers. This time he's tried to run away. They've let him run away. He's fallen asleep outside. He's woken up next to a body, which looks a lot, not a lot like him, but it's just another nameless person, just as he has become as well. It's very, it's very odd. If this is a, if this is a game being played on the part of the village. Yeah, but it, if it's not been planted there by the village, if this is just a random body that's washed up on mm. the shore, then this is the only real means of communication that he has had from the outside world mm. uh, in a very long time, or indeed ever, mm. in that this is something unexpected. A proclamation! All citizens take notice that carnival is decreed for tonight. Turn back the clock. There will be music, dancing, happiness, all at the carnival by order. So the town crier uh, has decreed that carnival is here. And I love the fact that when they cut to everyone, you kind of hear lots of cheering in the audience, but they're all pretty stony faced. (laughs) There's a lot of very grumpy extras in this show. It makes no sense because often the the members of the village are slightly manic the whole time, um, and they're at least a bit more animated. In this episode, you see, you know, in the midst of this announcement about carnival, which is meant to be you know this big celebration, it's very odd that you know even when they cut to the dude who's got the uh, the clown face on, and he's completely stony faced, and you think this is all this is all getting very weird. Yeah, but he does say that there will be music and happiness and dancing by order. <laughs> you you are hereby ordered to be happy mm. and dance. It, I suppose it does play into the fact a little bit, if these people are stony-faced because they are genuinely, you know, dejected by being in the village, it, it does imply that they are as oppressed as number six is here. You know, that they are trapped there and they're just following... Yeah, well, they're... Maybe they're just no longer uh, resisting anymore. But some of them are already in their carnival outfits and yeah. some are still in their village outfits. And then as the crowd moves away, you see the black cat wandering around and then the butler glances at it as hmm. he passes by. Um, but number six heads home and the maid is back, but she's not in her uh, <laughs> in her whatever it is dress anymore. A period dress, yeah. Yeah, she's back in her maid's outfit. Um, and she tells him that she's got another new dress for tonight. Mm. But the maid tells him that his costume has arrived. <laughs> and uh, that he doesn't get to choose the costume. That people have their costumes chosen for them by other people in the village. Again, how this actually functions doesn't really seem to matter. You just get given your costume. And uh, he opens the box with his costume in and it's his own tuxedo. Mm. Uh, which presumably we saw him wear in A, B and C. Oh yeah, and it's another Anthony Skeen episode. So this is uh, what the tuxedo he would have worn when he went to Madame Ongadine's party. Yeah, and he immediately recognises it as his own. So presumably they have actually shipped his tuxedo over Mm. from his house whenever they got all his stuff out. (laughs) They've been keeping it in storage somewhere in case they need it for some messed up manipulation Mm. uh, attempt on him. That he recognises it as his own. 
and the maid makes quite a funny reference to the fact that uh, she must know that he was out the previous night. Mm. There's that strange exchange where uh, she says something like, "Well, it's like you know, it's you know, it's, it's not like you're locked in here." But everything she says is quite arch. I'm not sure if it's her performance. <laughs> there's something very odd about every line that she delivers in these episodes. Um, and it's clear that the village know that he's been out and there probably are, you know, and that, that's one of the things that makes me think that this might be a setup from the start in some way to, you know, it was all designed to allow him out, to allow him not to get caught by Rover and to allow him to ultimately find the body. And they're doing that thing where they subtly let him know that they know what he's up to. But he can't ever confirm it. But it makes him a little bit uneasy about things. Mm. But when she asks what it means that he's been given his own suit for Carnival, he says he thinks it means that he's still himself. Mm. Which is, I suppose, the only thing that he can really hold on to at this point. Yeah. And in terms of how the episode is going to play out, it speaks to the ideas which come up again and again. I mean, not just about life and death, but also in a more in a more philosophical sense, you know, the idea of existence and identity. And these are things which are played upon, you know, not only through props such as the unidentified body that washes up, which has, um, you know, a wallet with it or that has the, you know, the personal photos and things like that. The fact that people are being asked to dress up actually on, you know, in as part of this game or as part of what the village tells them to do, they're dressing up as other as other people, basically. And then what will play out is the idea that, I don't know how to describe it, but the idea that uh, they are trying to potentially also convince the, you know, the outside world that Six himself is, is dead uh, later on in the episode, which is strange given that within this, they're also trying to make him uh, have a sense of his own lack of existence as well um, but do it in the context of giving him his own suit as well which is the one thing which he can cling on to as a sign of his own sense of self and identity yeah so the maid leaves and number six goes to check out the mini radio that he's now got uh hidden in his flat which means he, he doesn't seem to know at this point that they're watching him <laughs> in his apartment which i'm sure he knew in other episodes but number two and the doctor are both watching him mess around with the radio. And when the doctor objects to uh, to this, number two says that he's an individual and they're always trying. Mm. Um, and then the scientist wants to discuss Dutton because he was asking for instructions on what to do with him mm. before because he's proven to be difficult. And Dutton gets described as a small fish, I think it is, and is, is basically written off as a chance to experiment mm. on him. He's unimportant. It doesn't matter whether he survives or not. So it's effectively giving him free reign to do what he wants. Yeah. So in an episode when they're emphasising the importance of number six to them, uh, not just for the information he has, but also what he could serve purpose for for them in the future, you know, the, the corollary of that is that they treat other people in the village as, as just pieces of meat basically to be used to their own ends so it's clear again that six is really important to the village so number six heads out to the lookout point um where he plays around with the radio to see if he can pick up any kind of reception but he keeps getting these nonsense messages coming Mm. through no matter what frequency he tunes into 
think that there's one message that says, Nowhere is there more beauty than here. Tonight, when the moon rises, the whole world will turn to silver. <laughs> yes, I understand that completely. It's almost like one of those spy messages, like a coded, mm-hmm. like a coded spy message that you'd that you'd have in like a um, like a John Le Carre novel or something. There's something there's something very odd about it, and the fact he listens to it quite intently. It's almost like he's not expect. I mean, I don't know what he would expect on a radio, but the fact these messages are being passed around. Either he's, I always took it to mean that he's tuned in to you know, some bandwidth which just has these messages playing maybe somewhere. So maybe he's, you know, he's interrupted some other communications between spies or something. Um, but he doesn't seem perturbed by it. And again, this could just all be about the fact that it speaks to his previous profession. I mean, maybe these codes mean something to him, um, especially in light of him not being too worried about the fact that he found a washed up corpse. It's strange that it didn't, that that didn't worry him. And his first response was to get you know, get the wallet and try and find out who it was. He didn't seem particularly shocked that there was a body dead uh, on the beach in front of him earlier on. Yeah. And this business with the radio, I know that Anthony Skin has talked about the influence of um, Jean Cocteau Mm. on this particular episode, and in particular um, the movie Orphée, Mm. which is a French film, a modern, well, mid-20th century retelling of Orpheus and the Underworld. And I think it's is it a car stereo in that mm. that nonsense messages come through yeah. on, and there's other parallels as well that Skeen has talked about, like um, later on there's a two way mirror, which is from that too, and the, the the dead body washing up on the beach and things like that. Yeah, the influences are very strong in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the there's a definite um, link there with the the nonsense that comes across the radio mm. and the, the the inability to interpret it or the futility of trying to interpret mm. it um and and this this link with communication with the underworld again i think is very strong because because when you have these communications coming from the outside world to the village through a dead body washing up or through garbled messages on the radio mm. that no one can understand uh, you get these links with mythological versions of the underworld or the afterlife, or the place where the dead go. Um, and given that this is a, an episode all about making him effectively dead to the outside world, in keeping with the title, it's. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to draw some parallels between this and the way some of those communications happen in, in some other stories. If you look at classical depictions of the underworld from Greek and Roman mythology, you always see some access being required over a body of water, like a a river or an ocean, uh, sometimes more than one river. And it's always a place where people who are unburied cannot enter. So effectively, if your body hasn't been buried in the real world, then your soul cannot enter. Um, If you look at stories of um, Odysseus travelling to the underworld and also Aeneas travelling to the underworld both of them end up meeting friends that they knew in life who have died who are unburied and whose ghosts are just kind of wandering around outside the river because they can't enter the underworld without being buried um, so again when you think of the body that washes up on the beach unburied as a sort of lost soul and then comes to represent number six himself when they try and send it 
back across the water as a as a message. It's it's someone who is sort of not at rest. It's always depicted in those myths as a place of judgment where everybody goes to the same underworld, but there are different places in the underworld for different people. Um, and there's always someone who is passing judgment on other people, much like the trial and the three judges who sit over number six and try and preside over his fate in the episode. In the Odyssey, um, the underworld is depicted as a place where anyone would just want to be anywhere else. I think it's Achilles who says that he'd rather be alive and a servant than be the king of the dead in the underworld. Um, and it, it ties in with what number six says on the beach where he says, when, when number two says that you know everything that he wants is in the village and he says no everything is elsewhere there is nothing in the village that he wants he would rather do anything to get back to his life than remain dead in the village effectively and many of these again in both um, the odyssey and also uh, in stories when Aeneas goes to the underworld they meet people who want to know about the events that are taking place in the real world they want to know how cities are they want to know how family members are getting on and that they long for news about the world that they left behind. So again, think about Dutton asking number six how London is and talking about the fact that places don't change, but people change. It's it's this idea of being cut off from life where the one thing that you would crave is news of what's happening back home, what's happening to the places and the people that you love. And this is something that also crops up in the Divine Comedy, of course, where Dante, the poet, uh, in the Divine Comedy, often meets people that he knew in life who ask him about how everything is going back in, in the world of the living. And these garbled messages that you get coming across on the radio, and the message that Number Six himself tries to send back out into the rest of the world, uh, if you think of maybe um, the idea of oracles um, who receive messages from the divine but they're always in riddles and omens and they have to be interpreted they they don't make any sense at face value uh, the uh, the underworld is always depicted in in classical myth as being a place where time doesn't mean anything um, people no longer really have any idea of the passage of time uh, it, it's like they they know the future and the past but the present doesn't seem to mean anything so again, think about Dutton saying that he's just not sure how long he's been there because time doesn't mean anything to him anymore. He's just sort of wasting away and he no longer has any idea of how many weeks, months, maybe even years that he's been there. Uh, and also going back to the use of the dead body again as a form of message arriving from the rest of the world and also being sent back out to the rest of the world. Um, I think it's in uh, Lucan's Pharsalia where there's a, there's a witch called Erechtho. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But she's a necromancer and she uses dead bodies to communicate with the underworld. Um, there's one story where she goes into a battlefield and finds the body of a dead soldier and effectively forces the spirit to re-enter the body so that she can be told a prophecy by the spirit before it then goes back to the underworld again. And there's other stories where she uses 
um, corpses to speak messages into their mouths and those messages will then be delivered into the underworld. So I, you know, although this is all completely allegorical and it's not as if the village is actually the afterlife in a way, but when you think of all of the connections that they're putting into this episode in particular with the idea of them making number six dead to the rest of the world and that the whole episode being shrouded in the the concept of death and judgment i i just love all of these um sort of connections that you can make when you're watching it so after listening to the messages number two and number 240 appear and again, playing the game of pretending that they don't know what he's doing, even though they've clearly been observing everything he's been doing with the radio, uh, they find him and they ask him, I think initially, you know, where he got the radio, does it still work? And actually he plays it again, and now we don't really get a garbled, spy-like, coded message, which we got before. This time it's it sounds almost like a normal radio broadcast that he's uh, sort of tapped into in some way, which is kind of weird, because the other thing I think... Yeah, the other one about, I don't know, the moon turning silver or something, that just sounded very weird. But this one is, you know, it just sounds like he's tuned into Radio 4 or something, <laughs> um, which would be disappointing um, if you were, you know, if you really wanted to communicate with the outside world. <laughs> it's a bit harsh, Radio 4. <laughs> um, although at least if Radio 4 was broadcasting, you know, the outside world was still there. That is true. Isn't that one of those stories about how people who are on a nuclear submarine were meant to tell that the world hadn't ended because they could tune into the Today programme on Radio 4 mm. uh, every day and that they'd know that if that was still on, that that meant that there hadn't been Armageddon in the meantime. Or we haven't put the clocks forward, hasn't it? <laughs> so they take the radio um Number two tries to convince him that you know he shouldn't really be interested in the outside world anywhere. That mm. everything he wants is there. He replies that everything is elsewhere, mm. meaning that nothing is is here. Um, and she kind of starts to threaten him with, you know, taking more drastic action against him if he doesn't start conforming. Uh, and he says, "Yeah, no, I've I've seen the hospital. I've seen what goes on." Yeah, which he last well. If you put this earlier on in the chronology of of uh, his arrival in the village, uh, this would place it after he's seen what's going on with those strange mind control experiments back in arrival. Hmm. But she says that he's really only seen a fraction of what they can do. <laughs> but these threats to him are distinct from their actual intentions, which is not to harm him. Hmm. They just want him to believe that they might do that to him. Yeah. Uh, but in reality... They're playing it a lot safer with him. Hmm. Uh, number two leaves, and six and number 240 have a sort of back and forth exchange where 240 is basically saying that she's just doing her duty to everyone <laughs> in following the rules and that he's a wicked man because he's deliberately breaking the rules, hmm. not because the rules themselves are there for a particular reason, but they are what they are, and therefore you have a duty to abide by them no matter what. Yeah, I think as a... As a second episode, this would have served that purpose of establishing the fact that the village has lots of rules, <laughs> you know, and everyone and everyone in the village just follows them blindly. Mm. Uh, and the and it would have also established the fact that not only does he not follow them, but he doesn't believe he should, and he will not. <laughs> um, so it does 
there are elements of it which are very weird this episode it's very mm. surreal it's, there are strange supernatural elements but also it does work in the context of setting up some of the general mechanics of how they may have wanted the village to work you know to start explaining what was going on how it worked um even that conversation earlier about you know where the groceries came from mm. you know you do wonder if they wanted to have just flashes of it in the series so have these odd throwaway lines or they were actually planning to go into it a little bit more. I know that Magoon probably didn't want to reveal any more about the intricacies of how the village worked. But, you know, maybe uh, Mark Steen did. I mean, maybe he wanted that to explain a little bit about what was going on to make it into more of a, a real place. So, number six heads off through the village over towards the stone boat, where he picks up a life ring, which is propped up on the side of the stone mm. boat which is a, a, a wonderful surrealist concept because the stone boat isn't on the water. You don't need a life ring. Mm. And yet there's a life ring on the stone boat for no reason, as if to give it the costume of being a boat when mm. it isn't. Um, but he swipes it while the boat's being decorated and heads back off to the cave where he has stashed the dead body that washed up before mm. um, while deciding what to do with it. And he's still got the dead body's wallet as well. Um, the only thing that's gone at this point is the radio. Mm. He's obviously hatched a plan of what to do. So he takes his his own ID with his picture on, a map that he seems to have drawn of the village and the island that it's on, wraps it all up inside the wallet to put it back in the pocket of the dead man. Um, wrapped in plastic mm. so that uh, it won't get wet. He puts the life ring on the dead body and starts dragging it back out to sea. And and again, this is the uh, the the whole concept of identity being brought up again in this mm. episode, where you see number six's ID card that literally just says number six with mm. his picture on. Which now makes sense as to what the postman wants to have him sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and he. Uh, He's he's sending that back out to the world. Again, this is his means of communication with them. He can't send them a message that's going to make sense. If if you were the person who got that body, how would you make sense of it? It's got a map of a place that seems imaginary and uh, an ID card of someone you, you didn't know, but if it made it to the authorities, would think that that was somebody who was either dead or abducted or had gone over to the other mm. side. Um, inexplicably saying number six on it, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, nothing that he's sending back to them would make sense. From that, for them receiving that message, it would be like him getting the radio message about the moon turning the world silver. Yeah. How are they going to really understand what it is that he's trying to say? Mm. It's, it's that impossibility of communication between um, between the world and the the underworld. Yeah, and he is he is just you know, tried to get a message from the outside world by listening to the radio, and it was nonsense. Mm. And essentially he's doing the same thing, sending a message out. Yeah, mm. <laughs> which would be nonsense to whoever mm. gets it. <laughs> yeah. So this whole time, um, we're back in sort of one of the control rooms, I think, and uh, number 240 is getting quite anxious because she can't find number six. Mm. Now, she is functioning as an observer of um, over six. And we've had this idea once before, I think it was uh, Schizoid Man, mm. where number 24 was assigned. 
And so, so for some reason, and again, I, I'm never really sure how relevant the numbers are, but it's interesting that number 24 was his observer in Schizoid Man, and then now we have 240 um, as his observer here. So just add a zero on. Again, <laughs> I don't really know whether you know why they choose these numbers, whether there was any logic to it, aside obviously from two and six and the reference to one. But it is kind of uh, interesting that they, that they must have toyed in these early episodes with having supervisors around or observers as well mm. because we don't see peter swanick as a as a supervisor um it, it appears that 240 has her own sort of supervisor yeah so and the doctor had a supervisor as well uh, earlier on yeah so so the supervisor here seems to be number 22 mm. and she's talking to 240 um because 240 can't find number six and 240 asks well shall i watch number 34 instead mm. And she replies, very matter-of-factly, oh, no, he's dead. Mm. Um, as if that's just a perfectly normal thing. Oh, don't worry about looking at that person anymore. Yeah, he's dead already. Yeah, and the fact she says it like that, um, you can imagine most of the other number twos in the series so far would have done it with a bit of a cackle <laughs> and an evil laugh. Um, but she just does it in such a cold, matter-of-fact way. It just makes it all the worse, I think. Yeah, she says it's, it's none of our business, mm. I think, she says about about who... Who lives and who dies. And we are notably in this scene, and it's become apparent uh, when there's been intercutting between um, like parts of the episode, wherever you know Six is, and when he's communicating uh, with, or being watched by people in the Green Dome or the control room, that throughout most of these scenes in the latter part of the episode, everyone in charge is female for mm. once. So although... We've said, you know, obviously that number two is female here. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the chain of command are revealed to be female, but largely only in this episode, mm. which is a which is a bit strange. You know, you can understand. I mean, it's it's weird that the whole hierarchy seems to change in this episode, uh, not just number two, just the whole infrastructure changes. I mean, the fact that he has an observer, we've already said, is not particularly weird because it happened in Schizoid Man, but the fact that the observer's supervisor is female as well and plays a prominent role in the uh, in the carnival at the end. Well, she's well. the one who's Cleopatra yeah. in the carnival, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it's... I suppose you could see it as being in keeping with the idea of carnival as a, a, a time when roles are reversed mm. and social order is turned on its head. Mm. Um, or you could see it as the idea of death as being a leveller of everyone. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the episode's called Dance of the Dead. If you think of it in, in terms of, you know, something like a dance macabre, mm. which was the this medieval literary um, idea, you see it in paintings, but I think there were plays mm. and all sorts of things as well, of, it, it was like an image of death leading lots of people, kings and queens and children and farmers and ev everyone from every station of life being led along because they're all going to the same place. Decided that death levels everyone, and therefore mm. um, you shouldn't be too proud of yourself, basically, <laughs> in what you're doing in life, mm. because everybody ends up the same way. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, it is striking that it's it only happens in this episode, and it's very specifically an episode in which there are questions of identity and everyone wearing costumes and things being turned on their head. Mm. But even then, maybe it's yeah. There has to be something to be said about the fact that 
given that Maguan never had romantic female leads in episodes of The Prisoner, and he clearly didn't like it whenever it was shoehorned into episodes of Danger Man either. <laughs> Often there have been cases in the show where they've had to introduce female characters who, who have to go above and beyond being a stock romantic lead mm. and it often makes quite interesting characters and i think in this episode the fact they have that whole female hierarchy makes this a very unique and actually quite interesting hour of television so six has floated the dead body off to sea on its life ring mm. and he's caught in the act by roland walter dutton mm. who is standing in the entrance to the cave um in his striped shirt like a bumblebee <laughs> But crucially, he's not in the state we saw him in earlier. So when we, so you know, at the beginning of the episode, he's kind of under some kind of hypnotic state, where he's making the call to number six, but he's being fed the lines by the doctor. But even here, he doesn't look particularly, particularly well. <laughs> no, no. He, he he looks like a, a very ill man, yeah. and he says to six, "You of all people, I'd never have believed it," <laughs> and. Is is he saying that in reference to him being there? Does he think that Six is maybe part of it? Hmm. Is he talking about the fact that he's just floated a dead body out to sea? <laughs> I don't know. What is it about this situation that he does not believe? Well, in this episode, I, I do wonder if for a few moments, Dutton looks so confused that maybe he thinks he is dead. <laughs> you know, and it, like, in a strange kind of way, maybe he just thinks that he can't believe that he is he is seeing somebody who he knows. Mm. Um, I mean, everything must be really alien to him. There's just something about his his responses here that kind of seem to suggest that I don't think he's aware of of any wrongdoing on his own part, but he just seems very confused. Things and maybe maybe he thought or he has been told at some point that number six, who he used to know in their life outside of the village. Um, maybe he thought he was dead, which is you know, something which has been alluded to throughout the episode and continues to be brought up uh, right to the very last moments. Yeah, because Dutton says that he, he finds it difficult to say how long he's been there mm. for. He thinks maybe it might be a couple of months, mm. but he can't really tell. And this, this is something that is common to many, many depictions of the underworld, which is that time no longer has any meaning mm. and people can no longer really sense the passage of time mm. at all. Um, you get that in the Divine Comedy, for example, mm. um, as well as in uh, a lot of Greek and Roman mythology. So it's it's this this idea that he, he seems to already be dead, even though he's not dead yet. He, he's effectively a sort of dead man walking because mm. he knows that he's going to get done in by the scientists because he has no more information left to give. You know, he explains that they've... He's, he's told them everything, but they don't believe that it's everything. Mm. They think he knows more. They've given him 72 hours to think it over, and then he's getting taken back to the hospital. Mm. And he knows that he has no more information to give. So he, he's, he's effectively living the last 72 hours of his life, mm. knowing that there's nothing really that he can do. And he's, you know, he, he's abandoned all hope, ye who enter here. He's, he's just given up. You know, he's 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 become kind of listless, like the dead, I suppose. Mm. And he, you know, I think they they try to strike up some conversation about their time before the village, mm. and this this conversation, which is you know, you know, how's London? Because he clearly wants some link to his 
former life or the real world mm. and the response is something like you know places don't change only people mm. and arguably this episode is about is about the change that happens in in people albeit temporarily mm. um but it does create confusion i think throughout the whole episode that they are explicitly making reference to people and changes in in uh, in identity that can take place and the idea that places don't change it was later on in the episode um, where uh, they're at the carnival and I think 240 says that this place has been going a long time. Mm. And number six says, you know, since the war, before the war, which <laughs> war? This idea that the village itself is unchanging mm. and may have been around for a really, really long time. And the people in the village come and go. The number twos come and go all the time. Mm. People change, but the place does not change. Mm. And it just keeps churning people through it. Mm. Yeah, and the only co- yeah the only constants here are number six, and the village, and obviously an unseen number one. Yeah, you know, there's there's like everything else. Now you realise, like even well, every every aspect of the show reinvents every week, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's one of those are very meta references, which is which is thrown in unintentionally or not. I don't know. But Dutton doesn't expect to be around much longer. He he says soon Ro- Roland Walter Dutton will cease to exist. Yeah. It's very strange when people refer to themselves in the third person. <laughs> what were you looking at? A light. A star. A boat. An insect. A plane. A flying fish. Somebody who belongs to my world. This is your world. So then we have this very odd short scene out on the beach in the village between number two number six it's and unclear when it when it you know, when this is meant to take place yeah it's meant to be like is, is it kind of twilight in the evening before the carnival begins mm. um because it the sun seems to be going down which is a very difficult time to film i would imagine <laughs> and he's now dressed up for carnival in his own tuxedo mm. and in fact number two who is now dressed as peter pan um which again the idea that you know you never grow up you never change mm. Neverland never changes, but people change if they go away and they grow up. N- number two turns up and, and says to him, you're waiting, Mr. Tuxedo. <laughs> and she, she calls him Mr. Tuxedo as if his name is simply the clothes that he's wearing. Because um, he doesn't have a name, he doesn't have an identity. So he's literally just Mr. The shirt on your back. <laughs> you know, Mr. Tuxedo. And, and he replies, are you Mr. Peter Pan with his shadow? And that they have this back and forth about whether or not he's seen something out to sea. Was it a light, a boat, an insect, a flying fish? <laughs> Just a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful scene. And that the sort of power struggle going on in it, it reminds me of that scene in Hamlet between Hamlet and Polonius, where Hamlet is winding Polonius up, asking him, you know, trying to get him to agree to what the cloud looks like. <laughs> Is it is it shaped like a camel? Is it back like a weasel? It's very like a whale. <laughs> He's just continually getting Polonius to try and agree to whatever shape he says the cloud is at any given moment. Bit of a Hamlet reference. Yeah, well, I, I shoehorn them in when I can. <laughs> <laughs> so Six uh, turns up at the at the carnival dance, and immediately we see some of the characters we've seen before, amongst many others, who are all dressed in fancy dress, often taking the form of uh, various historical or fairy tale figures as well. Um, 
And both of those are, are kinds of characters who play significant functions in the in the mythology and iconography of the show. I mean, mm-hmm. you've always got these... Um, well, often in terms of history, there are lots of nautical themes that take place mm-hmm. involving character names and, and, and costume. But also the fairy tale element is very strong here. So the fact we have uh, characters from nursery rhymes, etc., is actually not that much of a surprise in, in the grand scheme of how how they like to put these themes together. Yeah, and, and the mixture of historical figures, because anyone who's a real-life figure is someone who is long dead, mm. mixing with mythological figures and, and fairy tale figures, like Peter Pan and Bo Peep, you know, dancing with Napoleon and Julius Caesar mm. and Elizabeth I and Cleopatra. Mm. Uh, it's that, that mixture of characters, um, again, reminds me of the Divine Comedy, where on his trip through Inferno and uh, Purgatory and Paradise, the people that he meets along the way are a mixture of all those people. Mm. You know, it's it's filled with historical figures, but also fictional figures and, and mythological figures that are in there. So again, it's this, this idea of an afterlife in which all of these things, people which no longer exist or never did exist, mm. now continue to exist. Mm. And they certainly never coexisted. Mm. It just it just puts these things uh, quite anachronistically together, and it just makes it very jarring because although it's meant to be this uh, this celebration, there's something very forced about the whole thing and artificial that makes it all quite sinister. Um, it's almost like everyone is in on something that Six isn't, which kind of flies in the face of it being this open celebration that everyone should be having in the village. Yeah, and when. Six says to two that you know he doesn't have a costume, mm. and two responds, "Perhaps it's because you don't exist." Mm. Which it's evidently in order for him to be there, he does exist, mm. and yet it's almost a reference to the fact that they're making him a a non-person, mm. making him a person who may be real, but who doesn't exist in any meaningful way beyond the confines of the village. Yeah, has he just become? essentially a mythological figure mm. just like all these other people um you know he you know he blends in he might seem like he is retaining the costume of his former life whatever that you know whatever that job entailed but arguably it's completely undervalued by putting it amidst all these people in in fancy dress representing characters who yeah as you said uh are long dead or never existed to begin with yeah, and all the people in there who are dead, they're all famous figures who have become mythologised in a way where the, the the idea of Napoleon or Elizabeth I that we have mm. is not the real person. It's the mythologised version of that person mm. that we have read about or seen plays about. Um, you know, it's it, it becomes fictionalised and mythologised over time. Mm. I mean, to the point where People used to think that mythical figures were people just from distant history. And at, at what point does a character, at what point does a person move from being a historical figure to a mythical figure, mm. where the idea that most people have of them is so far removed from reality that they may as well be a mythical figure? And in some ways, is the idea of number six, because it is, he is ultimately a fictional character, is number six as... You know, as a distinct character, just like Peter Pan or Bo Peep, mm. 
in what number six represents to us now and maybe always did represent. Hmm. Or indeed, this is weird, when number six no longer exists by coming into the carnival amidst all these other fictional characters, is that the same in some way as Patrick McGowan becoming number six in a fictional TV show? <laughs> Ooh, that sounded probably more profound in my head. But you know what I mean. I, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean because number six is a, a thinly veiled version, version of Patrick yeah. McGowan himself. Yeah. So he's he's in costume, but still himself. And now number six is in costume, but still himself. Yeah. And number six is Patrick McGowan in costume, but still himself. Yeah. Surrounded by other people in costume in the village. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, That's something to think about, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, Peter Pan introduces number six to Little Bo Peep. Um, <laughs> Woody <laughs> would be scandalised by this. <laughs> Uh, but she always knows where to find her sheep Mm. Um, and number two is encouraging them to dance and have fun but clearly neither of them want to dance with each other Uh, and there's just very awkward contactless shuffling that goes on around the dance floor partly because Patrick McGowan didn't want to actually dance romantically with someone even though I think that was what was in the script wasn't Mm. it that they, that they were meant to dance together. As they go around the dance floor, he says that this is his first and last carnival. Uh, and she responds that there are treatments for people like you. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit harsh. <laughs> it's a bit harsh. Not, not everyone likes to dance. It's fine. <laughs> but it is, it's interesting that they're doing this with these vague references to what they could do because they've already had a number two. If you put this after arrival showing him some of the things they do to people, whether it's those strange rooms where people are wearing sunglasses and shuffling their legs, mm. um, or the person who's making that, that thing levitate in front of his head. You know, all kinds of crazy things are going on in terms of the experiments here. So these these veiled threats are extremely, extremely sinister, especially when they, uh, uh, when they come from Bo Peep. <laughs> And he, he presses her on who's really in charge of, of all of this. Mm. He says, is he here tonight, the man behind the big door? Mm. Which is like Wizard of Oz. Mm. Um, but he, he's clearly still digging, digging all the time, trying to understand what the actual structural authority is in this place mm. and who's really behind it. Which I suppose, if this comes before um, an episode like Free For All, it sets up the kinds of questions which they were going to tackle in what would have been the future episodes. Mm. So it is weird that they obviously choose to air it now um, as episode eight. But again, it does seem to have so many things that foreshadow some of the ideas and concepts that would pop up in later episodes. Mm. And then number two and the scientist um, have a little chat together in which, again, they reiterate the fact that they don't want to um, damage number six. Um, this, this, this scientist seems really keen on damaging number six for some reason, which is all, all again, very sinister. Um, but meanwhile, number six uh, shuffles away mm. from the dance while everyone's distracted and sneaks off into the back rooms and gets himself a white coat and goes exploring um, to see what's back there. 
So now what we have is Patrick McGowan in costume as number six, who is in costume as himself, who is in costume as a scientist called number 116. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, given this is an anti skin episode, he is just leaving a very dreamy party again. <laughs> yeah, he is. This is a very dreamy party. <laughs> yeah. So while he's backstage, hmm. I guess you could call it, he bumps into a, a woman who is leaving a room where she's got a message that she needs to get to number two. It's a termination order mm. that has to be given to number two. And she hands it to who she thinks is number 116, mm. uh, who says that he'll be seeing number two that evening or pass the message on. Mm. But when he opens up the piece of paper, it's black background with white text. It just says Roland Walter Dutton. Mm. So he's for the chop. <laughs> Or whatever method they use. Yeah. Well, he, well, they did say he was going to return. Well, what's... Well, yeah, I suppose what's sinister is that... Didn't he say, you know, in 72 hours I'd, I'll be returned to the hospital? Yeah. And then he never says he's going to get killed. He says he'll cease to exist. Yeah. So it almost seems like the punishment is going to be complete removal like of his identity. Mm. Which is a very strange and quite terrifying thing to think about as something that you know the village would actually be able to do mm. what i also love about this scene is um when you see him talking to um to the woman and he and she passes on the message that he's going to give to number two you see a glimpse that there's there's one shot where there's an angle where you can see behind the woman into the room that she's come from and there's just all these weird metallic boxes and tubes along the back wall hmm. behind her with, with no clue as to what they might be or what their purpose is it's just a really odd thing and I, I don't know who put them or who designed it or what oh, it's loads of switches and tubes and stuff and I just think what an incredible thing to build just for that one brief shot where you see behind her yeah. this this tiny glimpse behind the curtain into whatever machine is back there mm. just for that one brief moment mm. and also you've got this in terms of also the general production design here which is always really fantastic on this show i love the the recurring theme of having these uh these busts all over the place mm. as well and again it fits with uh, an episode like like the general where we saw uh the professor's wife uh, madame what was her name madame professor madame professor yeah, yeah. Uh, where we saw uh, the professor's wife, um, uh, Madame Professor, who was, you know, who was making lots of these busts of people. And we've had the one of the Leah McKern number two now pop up a couple of times. Mm. I just love these recurring themes. And even when we even when we were in Port Marion recently, there was one of the first things you notice are, are some of the, you know, the heads, which are sort of in those little recesses in walls and things like that. Mm. So... Armed with this message, he starts to make his way through other sets of electric doors hmm. that open up to let him in, um, whether someone is opening them or whether it's automatic. Hmm. Which is a contrast to what we've seen earlier, where obviously the town hall refused to let him in. Hmm. And we've seen in uh, the general that you know, they can put these false fields around if they want to stop people doing things. But the fact he just uh, wanders in, you're never quite sure if that implies that the village want him to find something or go somewhere. 
Yeah, and he, he finds himself in this sort of gigantic filing room. Mm. It's got the, these very sort of utilitarian filing blocks covering all the walls. Mm. In some ways, visually reminiscent of the place in the opening credits where his X'd out mm. photograph gets filed under the resigned drawer. Um, but he, he goes through, he finds a key hang. It's the worst security ever. They hang the key on the wall right next to the door <laughs> that the key unlocks. But he makes his way through and into, I guess it's kind of a morgue, really. Mm. It's got four refrigerated doors, so they're, they obviously are equipped to cope with killing up to four of their residents at any one time. Yeah, well, in Arrival, again, they, they make very strong reference to having the cemetery. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not a surprise. But again, it fits with what would have been established after the first episode. Mm. And three of them are empty, but one of them contains the body that he pushed out to sea earlier on, mm. uh, which has been brought back in by the village. And that's when he's interrupted by number two and the black cat. Mm. It's you who's died in an accident at sea. A mare. So to the outside world. Which you only dream about. I'll be dead. A small confirmation of a known fact. So presumably she's been watching him this whole time, following him through to, yes. to where he's gone. So they must have wanted him to come on this route. They must have allowed... I mean, to be honest, almost like the moment when they let him get away from Rover earlier on in the episode, there's always this element of them allowing Six to do things, to find things out. And they like to observe and see what his reactions are, just in case it reveals something to them. Mm. Number two says that uh, she's slightly jealous that the cat has taken to him, <laughs> as it has. Which, I mean, you could read it as being about the cat, but you could also read it as being about number 240. Mm. Because there is this weird implied triangle of, not really affection, but um, of interest between mm. the three of them. Between two and 240 and number six. As if number two and number six are in some way vying for number 240's um, attention. Mm. I think that line is, yeah, is very telling. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, you know, it's in literal reference to the cat, but the subtext is pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she also says the cat is very efficient and even ruthless <laughs> uh, in in its, uh, its action. So then she explains what the plan is, why they brought this body back. Mm is that they're going to alter it to make it more closely resemble number six. Yeah, and we know that that's possible in the world of the village because in an episode like The Schizoid Man, you know, we've seen that they can alter appearances or get people who look similar to other people. We've had physical clones appear in the series as well, whether it's been in Free For All, where there was the photographer and the guy selling the tally-ho to the electrician and stroke, was it Gardner or something in Arrival? Yeah, there are strange things that the that the village is capable of, and he must be aware that this is actually true. They're going to basically send it out with some of Six's, or presumably his ID and things like that, mm. on it, so that wherever it washes up, it will be what she describes as confirmation as of a known fact, mm. which is that he is dead. Uh, now, of course, he has... Well, depending on where you put this in the chronology... He has already gone back to London in Many Happy Returns and talked to people and then disappeared again. Yeah. So what any of them make of any news that he is dead, we don't know. Mm. 
Or if this happens before that, then from their perspective, it's like he's come back from the dead. But they don't behave like that. No. Uh, so one wonders if it is, it is the case, it, you know, that they, they must have already put some information out. And they clearly have connections with his former bosses, etc. You know, that you know, they must have made them get at least get warmed up to the idea that Six might be dead, and now they're just following through on that with this new plan. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's an odd comment about the outside world where they're talking about, you know, to the outside world he will appear dead, and she says, which which you only dream of, mm. as for, basically acknowledging that the outside world may exist because otherwise they wouldn't want to give the impression of him being dead mm. but at the same time he may as well only be dreaming of it because he's never going to see it yeah they i mean it's constantly about undermining his his sense of self his sense of identity and indeed now what he believes to be the outside world by making it you know seem a dream you start to i think make him doubt whether he knows anything about what he thinks he knows mm. so then they head back off to the dance where the cabaret is going to be on and it yeah. turns out that the cabaret is number six being put on trial for having a radio yeah it's a kangaroo court with a uh, with a massive disco ball in it <laughs> i mean it is, it is crazy that they have a like a giant disco ball in the scene mm. i don't know why it just it just it's such a weird addition to the <laughs> to the set because it, it, like, like, i don't know why it doesn't seem like something you would expect to to see it's very distracting because every time it shows that the establishing shot of the room (laughs) it's a huge disco ball and uh, she describes it as the people versus this person so Mm. again there's no identities it's just the plural versus the singular well they're not going to call him john drake are they (laughs) (laughs) and there's no jury three judges which he reminds him is just like in the french revolution Mm. because you know that all went wonderfully for everyone (laughs) um and the judges are the maid, who is now Elizabeth I, the scientist, who is Napoleon, and the town crier, who is Julius Caesar. Mm. And prosecuting is Little Bo Peep. <laughs> <laughs> and his defence is number two herself, mm. even though she's also one of the witnesses. Yeah. And, and what begins is this, this bizarre kind of Kafkaesque trial where he is accused and ultimately convicted of having a radio which is against the rules, which, is, as he points out, has anybody ever actually seen these rules? How mm. would you even know what the rules are? Mm. But apparently it's against the rules, and he made a conscious effort to go against the rules by mm. obtaining a radio, mm. which couldn't have been his. Yeah, and he tries to um, explain to the to the judges that actually it doesn't make any sense that uh, number 240 is the prosecution here Mm. but they're extremely dismissive of it and actually even when he raises it it's clear that he's doing it in a slightly half-hearted way because he knows i mean he it's one of the few scenes where he doesn't start screaming about something (laughs) um mainly because he must know that this is a this trial is a joke Mm. you know and and he's just being put through the ringer here and he knows it's rigged yeah and this is a scene where the really glaring error comes in Mm. because when 240 is explaining that she was a witness to him using the radio and she says uh, that they saw it, him on the bell tower with it. Hmm. Ah. They went on the bell tower. They were out on the, um, the sort of watching platform, yeah. the viewing platform. I've completely missed that. Did they say the bell tower? They say the bell tower. Mm. But, and maybe it was in the script that they were originally going to film it in the bell tower. Hmm. 
but for whatever reason they didn't they film it out on that on that kind of little that uh, uh lookout platform yeah the yeah. lookout yeah. Yeah, yeah um because the bell tower is that it's a huge thing that you see in, in arrival mm. where where the bell is chiming and mm. then we'll see it again in uh, it's your funeral mm. but they they must have filmed this first or just forgotten that they had, that they had mm. filmed it at the lookout and not on the bell tower. Well, all the studio things would have been done afterwards. Mm. So you wonder whether they you know, they must have done the lookout scenes during the initial production block with all the other bits that they filmed for you know during that period for several episodes. And then later on, they must have uh, just had it in the script that it would be the bell tower and then realised that. But, but this is also one of those episodes that was kind of hastily assembled, wasn't it? Because mm. it, it's the one which, which originally, I think, McGowan wasn't that happy with. Yeah. And it was... It was kind of put to one side, probably explaining why it comes later in the run than originally planned, because they just couldn't crack the actual episodes. They couldn't work out how to how to put it together. Yeah, and it was kind of I think salvaged by by John Smith, and they they assembled it into something. You um you can kind of see a situation where they would have had the lookout scenes and then put it together, maybe reshot bits to kind of insert it into kind of fill out the whole plot and maybe they just filmed it with uh, with a line about the bell tower not realising they would put it together. Yeah. <laughs> Bo Peep's mode of prosecution is basically to say that without the rules we would exist in a state of anarchy hmm. to which number six replies here, here. <laughs> uh, and that therefore deliberate action to break the rules damages the community, therefore it has to be punished. But it also seems silly that this whole thing is based around this radio. Yeah. Um, which we've seen both number two and number 240 acknowledge exists. And they know that, and in a strange way, they also know that there was nothing particularly useful about the radio because he played them something on it when they saw him at the lookout. Mm. So it's interesting that they, they use this as a means to undermine him, something so trivial, but that can be, a wonderful example of how important it is to to follow the rules and no matter how trivial the nature of the crime is you know they seem to think that uh you know the rules are everything here and they and they use an example of something that they know he had and turning it on him it's it's, it's as if breaking a minor rule and breaking a major rule are as bad as each other yeah. because they both go against the interests of the community which must mm. always be put first mm. And number two's only real method of defence is to basically say, well, look, he's new here, mm. so go easy on him. Mm. Um, you know, but beneath the awful majesty of the rules beats a human heart or something like that. Uh, to basically appeal to the clemency of the uh, of the judges, who are, are basically three judges who don't like him very much. Mm. <laughs> but it's strange that she would choose to make reference to six being new as well as a means to defend him when at the same time she's also explained that her one of the remits of her function as a number two at least in this episode is to make sure that to the outside world he no longer exists Mm. but i also like the fact that that, you know you're supposed to go easy on someone because they're new and they don't really understand what what Mm. the rules are yet it makes me think that episode of the simpsons i think wait does he join like the naval reserves or something and he almost causes a, an international incident on a nuclear submarine, and it's like that. Like the the submarine surfaces at the end, and like 
the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese and the Penguin Army are there. <laughs> and he explains to them all that it's his first day. And he explains it in every different language. It's my first day. And each time he does it, they're like, oh, it's all right. It's his first day. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> it's my first day. <laughs> you can get out of anything just by saying it's my first day. <laughs> Except for this, apparently, because mm. uh, he does not get out of it at all. Mm. Um, they find him guilty of deliberately breaking the rules. He, he tries to call a character witness because he, he knows that he can't really get out of the fact that he had the radio. Yeah. Because everybody knows that he had the radio. But he wants to call a character witness and he wants to call Dutton yeah. as a character witness. Because he says that a man who is scheduled to die is, is better fitted to say what needs to be said. Mm. I, I'm not entirely sure what he thought Dutton was going to say or just hope that he would say anything at all. And despite the fact that the judges are not happy that he's using a real name rather than a number. Mm. But I'm not sure we ever know what Dutton's number is. No, I don't think he has a badge. No. Um, so again, he's one of those characters who's... Yeah, in this instance, it's kind of odd because not only does he have no number, just a name, which is always bad, but also he has a, he has no badge. But then again, this is the carnival, so no one seems to have a badge at this. Mm. Or at least, you know, so it's an odd time because clearly one aspect of not being yourself as part of the carnival for this one night only thing is you don't have to wear your number. No, except for when number six dresses as a scientist in the corridors backstage yeah. where he does put on a number mm. when he doesn't normally wear one. Yeah. But he puts on the number 116 in order mm. to sneak around. So when he's in costume, he does have a number. Mm. But he calls Dutton as a character witness and they bring Dutton over shuffling mm. and set him down and he's he's dressed as a fool mm. um, with the jester's hat and I love the fact that the costume is in the same yellow and black colour yeah. scheme as, as the clothes that he otherwise wore. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a very good observation. It's, you know, that's his, those are his colours, aren't they? Mm. That's how he is identified and he has been reduced now to the state he is in uh, with a you know with a a costume that has been provided by somebody for him to represent him in some way they've clearly also been uh, completing the experiments that the doctor was threatening to do earlier on maybe this is the the state that's essentially pre termination notice mm. um you know this is how he's been kept and it's interesting that they bring him in and allow it to take place to parade him you know because mm. they there was that moment where the doctor said um you know, that ultimately he didn't really, well, both the doctor and number two were saying they didn't really care about him anymore. Yeah. You know, they only really worried about number six. And this is exactly what they're doing. They're willing to, you know, undermine this guy by wheeling him out into the arena of this fake court just so they can prove a point. They know this is going to happen. And to dress him up like that is even more um, uh, ridiculing for, you know, for... For Dutton yeah. uh, as well. And, and also, although they've brought him over and he physically still exists, if his mind is gone, then Roland Walter Dutton has ceased to exist. Yeah, which is what he feared would happen. Yeah. I like the fact that they have him holding that, that balloon on a stick and the balloon is very reminiscent of, uh, of Rover, obviously. Mm. And also, indeed, it's very reminiscent of Rover in this episode, which was clearly a weather balloon. <laughs> so I keep going back to... So Julius Caesar uh, pronounces that the uh, the sentence after deliberation is death, 
because breaking the rules is breaking the rules and that's what the sentence is and 240 is alarmed at this and she actually stands up and shouts no mm. and tries to stop it and it, it's it's as if I mean did she think that this was all just a charade that they were trying to scare him mm. if, if she's so certain that the rules had to be adhered to did she not realize that this would have to be the outcome but they've they've had a similar situation before when number 24 appeared at the end of the schizoid man to basically think oh maybe it all went too far mm. and that you know she was essentially doing what she was told and then she realizes what the what the actual end game is for number six and then she regretted it and that could be what's happening now with number 240 and maybe especially in light of number two's comment maybe she's also worried about number two's motives in in everything she's doing to number six at the moment Mm. number six who uh, it's hard to tell up until this point whether he really thought that this was all actually going to happen but he does actually seem genuinely unnerved by the pronouncement particularly the pronouncement that the people will carry it out yeah i think Um, it doesn't help that he's just seen dutton being wheeled out after having just seen him yeah. earlier in the day or the day before yeah. in a completely different physical and mental state. Yeah. And he's probably concerned about, you know, the the seriousness of what the punishment is actually going to uh, going to be. I mean what form it's going to take. Yeah. But but he is alarmed enough to make a bit of a speedy getaway <laughs> from the carnival. But he walks through the crowd and then down the corridor. And I, I just want to take a moment to talk about that gorgeous shot of the the long corridor leading to where they're having the carnival where you've got the the red um walls and the red carpet and those black arches with masquerade masks on the top of them and the red leather sort of banquettes Hmm. around the side it's just a beautiful beautiful shot it reminds me of some of the gorgeous scenery shots that they would do like that in the avengers sometimes Mm. particularly that episode where the domestic cats have the funny collars on that turn (laughs) them into tigers and there's this amazing shot in there where you have all these cat silhouettes cut out all the different these different colors behind them anyway i'll put that on the blog (laughs) so you can see them but i i the the set is beautiful in this i think and the the shot of that is gorgeous just as he's walking in away from the carnival and then as the crowd starts to scream and chase after him down the corridor. Yeah, it's this this kind of parade of clowns and historical figures and mythical beings start chasing him. You know, you've, you've got a, a musketeer and a mime. and um, There's cowboys and... Yeah. Yeah, it's completely bonkers. But, but he retraces his steps through those uh, back rooms that he saw earlier on. But this time he goes down a like a little hatch in the floor into a, like a basement level. Mm. Um, it's a very well-lit, very clean basement level. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly one that maybe he was meant to find as well. Mm. He, he makes his way back up through another staircase. It's all very, you know, hidden corridor from Cluedo kind of thing, you know. You can go from the conservatory to the library in one go. Uh, but he, he comes up behind one of the statues in the corridor outside, which is now deserted. Um, and he sort of strolls down it looking for another way through the building. And that's when he sees the room that has... Well, at first you can't see it, you can only hear it, mm. but it has the telex machine in it. Mm. And he goes inside 
and the machine is hidden behind one of those folding dresser screens. Mm. And again, every, everything in there is very kind of red and opulent and red and gold. Uh, but and he knows there's something behind the screen, which is kind of interesting. It's the most ridiculous kind of reveal, almost like it's there just to show him this is where you're meant to look by deliberately putting something in front of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it draws him to it. And he, he he obviously thinks that he has the chance to do something about it by um, essentially, you know, destroying it or, or, you know, or ripping out its innards, basically. Mm. You know, clearly this is part of this idea of, of communication. You know, it's, it's physically a machine that is involved in that, isn't it? Mm. But in the midst of all of it, he realises, and he, you know, well, well, there's a mirror on the wall and he could see the other members of the village outside who are essentially looking through what they don't realise is a, is a two-way mirror. And then he realises he's actually being uh, watched by number two and number 240, who have, be, who have clearly followed him down here. They knew he would go here. And they uh, interrogate him now that he's standing in front of this broken telex machine. Yeah, because earlier on he talked about, you know, is is the man behind the big door here tonight or something mm. like that? That he thinks that there's there's some authority that he can find, but instead of a a man behind a door, instead of a wizard in the castle, it's a telex machine behind the screen. <laughs> it's, he, he thinks he's found something meaningful, and he hasn't. He's mm. found more. He's just found something else that doesn't make any sense. Oh, yeah. Although at the same time, I mean, the idea of this machine is just spouting things and, you know, it it is reminiscent in some ways of, of uh, in junior form, what the general was. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I think it's, again, it's interesting that they, that they throw this into the episode here, but you kind of wonder, was it deliberately put there to, to foreshadow something or was the idea recycled a little bit uh, when they actually needed an ending for the general. Mm. So two sends 240 back outside to uh, shepherd away <laughs> the, uh, the the rest of the people mm. um, away from the room. They say that, you know, that they'll never, they'll never see in here. They, they don't have the initiative <laughs> to find their way in here. And when he asks why they're trying to kill him, number two replies that they don't know that you're already dead. <laughs> Because, of course, there's, there's no further repercussions from this episode in terms of people in the village trying to kill him later on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but they, they have made him dead by bringing him there and, and making him dead to the outside world. And that is as good as being dead. Therefore, the sentence of death that was passed on him has already been fulfilled. Hmm. So he's it, fine. Yeah, number six. Or at least his former version ceases to exist. Yeah. Yeah. And when he when he exclaims that uh, you know, the village will never win, she says, "How uncomfortable for you, old chap!" <laughs> and the machine springs back to life, even though it's been gutted and its components are strewn across the floor. It just keeps going and going and going. As indeed, I suppose the village does, no matter what he's going to try and do to it to bring mm-hmm. it down. You'll never win. Then how very uncomfortable for you, old chap. <laughs> so that's it for our discussion of Dance of the Dead. Coming up next, what we've got is a really fantastic interview. We were lucky enough to meet up again with Fiona Moore, who is the co-author with Alan Stevens of Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorised guide to the prisoner, which is a wonderful book which 
uh, goes through the series and, and discusses uh, some of the themes and ideas that the show touched upon uh, through these wonderful essay chapters. And uh, Fiona was one of our interviewees for our 50th anniversary Tally Ho podcast episodes. And uh, Dance the Dead is one of her favourite episodes. And she had lots of really wonderful things to talk about, not only from her perspective as a fan of the show, but also from her perspective as an anthropologist as well. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined once again by Fiona Moore, co-author of Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorised guide to the prisoner. Hi, Fiona. Hello. Right, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Uh, so we spoke to you, oh, it seems like a long time ago now, back August. for the yes. August last year for their 50th anniversary celebrations. We're going to talk today about Dance of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you rank Dance of the Dead in, in the overall series of The Prisoner? Well, personally, it's one of my very favourite episodes. Um, I like the uh, I, I like the gender aspect of it, the fact that it's the one where gender really comes to the fore in a way it doesn't often do in The Prisoner. I like the, uh, the surrealism with the radios and, uh, you know, the... Uh, yeah, the the dance itself and everything, and uh, the kind of playing with reality, and I also like the, uh, you know, the 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 behind the scenes backstory about how this is kind of uh, uh, John S. Smith's episode, really, in some ways, and uh, I think it's an episode that has a lot to offer. I mean, in terms of contribution to the series as a whole, um, it's perhaps a bit looser because. Uh, you've got Arrival, Once Upon a Time, Fallout as the kind of linchpin trinity of episodes that really kind of say what the prisoner is about but i would put it well above episodes like say chimes of big ben or uh, um, you know do not forsake me oh my darling which i feel kind of don't quite hit the mark um so yeah i'd certainly um my personal favorite we discussed before is the schizoid man but i would put that up there with the schizoid man and living in harmony as uh, one of the most accomplished episodes and one of the ones that uh, really does what the prisoner does best. So what was the story behind um, it almost not actually making it into the broadcast series? Right, well that one's quite a fun one. Um, It was actually one of the first four episodes filmed, Um, but uh, Patrick McGowan was unhappy with with it after uh, filming and uh, seeing the rushes and all that, so he, he he shelved it. But the uh, uh, series uh, film editor, John S. Smith, looked at the footage and thought, actually, you know, this could be saved. And he did a rough edit and uh, showed it to uh, McGowan, who uh, said, actually, you're right. And uh, so um, said it could it could, interestingly, have wound up as being the prisoner's lost episode. And if things had gone to plan, it would have been the prisoner's lost episode. So as with so much on the prisoner, it's kind of... uh, providential coincidence that uh, it wasn't and uh, so Smith's a brilliant editor as well so uh, you know it's good that it uh, was him that spotted it and it wasn't kind of future generations finding the film and kind of cutting it into what they think it might have looked like. So it was uh, as you say one of the uh, earliest episodes filmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do you think it places in well if it's possible a a chronology of the actual Mm -hmm. episodes in the series? Well, it's it's one of the three uh, second episodes. <laughs> you know, the brilliant thing, I'm sure Alan's talked about this or some of the other people have talked about this. Uh, 
the fact that uh, there were uh, several episodes filmed with a view to making them episode two, <laughs> uh, which uh, in a sense means that you've now got several episode twos. And, um, you know, in some ways, I think this, um, you can take that any way you like. I kind of like the, uh, the theory that there's something going on there that either, uh, in some sense, the prisoner is outside reality. And so every episode really starts anew. Uh, or, um, you know, there's John Bloom's idea that, uh, you know, the prisoner is kind of being repeatedly mind wiped. And so, well, uh, you know, who knows how long he's been there, actually, mm -hmm. but uh, it all seems new to him. But, you know, it does make it a curious watch, because if you're watching in the, you know, the kind of familiar broadcast order, it's, uh, you know, uh, about midway in, you know, episode seven, eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, it was filmed as an earlier episode. It feels much, you know, you've got the uh, the prisoner saying he's new here and, uh, you know, is, hasn't seen the night before and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's uh, part of the surreal chronology. It's It's got quite a sort of, well, for me, a very sort of heavy sort of fairy tale mm. feel to it. Um, there's You kind of feel influences of things like um, Peter Pan and Alice mm. in Wonderland and the idea of the village as this otherly place mm -hmm. where rules are different and then when you add the carnival on top of that where mm -hmm. you have a an event in which the rules change and people's identities change it's it's an odd episode to try and place anywhere because mm -hmm. almost if you place it very early on it seems to have a very heavy influence on how people feel about the village mm -hmm. but if you place it later on it doesn't seem to make sense in how number mm -hmm. six is behaving so the, one of the great things about the village, uh, a postmodern uh, thing about the village, is the way it uh, it, it changes subtly with every uh, every story, and uh, you see different aspects of it. So interesting. If I can get into another uh, line of it, uh, reading Terry Pratchett in the early um, uh, novels, um, he does a similar sort of thing with Ankhmore Pork in that. Uh, you know, in each book he describes it in a slightly different way, using slightly different metaphors, <laughs> and so it kind of becomes a slightly different city each time, almost. And I guess the same with The Prisoner, you know, that uh, there uh, are, um, you know, some episodes where it's uh, uh, more surreal, some where it's less surreal, some where it's uh, more of a kind of an English village, uh, and more somewhere, as you said, it's more of a fairy tale sort of place, and this is kind of seeing it through the lens of fairy tale. Is this a good point to bring up Cocteau? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because, uh, yeah, you know, the uh, the Cocteau influence is big and Cocteau uh, also played a lot with the um, fairy tale imagery. And so that's also uh, kind of feeding into it. You know, even Orphée, even though that's uh, Greek myth, it's it's a kind of a European, you know, northern Europeanized Greek myth, you know, the with the, uh, the mirrors and the cottages and the... Uh, general sort of otherworldliness of it and there's the um the nonsense that comes over the radio mm -hmm. as well yeah. which seems to be a sort of direct yeah reference to it mm -hmm. um but but also again reminded me of alice in wonderland of mm -hmm. just the general idea of of nonsense as yeah. something beautiful yeah that uh that, if you ever Researching this episode, actually, I uh, discovered that you can get recordings of those spy stations over, uh, you know, archive.org. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, L Lilla Bolero and all that. And, uh, you know, it's it's weird uh, listening 
you know, because again, you've got what sounds like uh, nonsense and it, yet you also know there's a meaning, you know, mm -hmm. sort of uh, people repeating, you know, things like the green swan of the east meets the grey bear and then sort of strings of numbers and uh, so, you know, there's this otherworldliness. But also, uh, you know, there's also, um, um, for, the, for the benefit of the lis listeners who haven't read Fallout or heard uh, our first podcast, I'm an anthropologist. <laughs> and um, one of the things we talk about in anthropology is uh, the high context culture. And in the high context culture, uh, there's a lot of inferences. Uh, that Star Trek episode where everybody goes around talking in quotations, uh, you know, that's uh, an extreme example of uh, what we mean by a high context culture. But for instance, um, one of the things that causes problems between German visitors to Britain and vice versa is Germany is uh, Germany. It's a very low context culture. So you kind of don't really need much in the way of personal knowledge to uh, go around German, uh, Germany. Everything's all written out. The rules are there. People will tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. But you go to Britain and it's high context. And so people don't tell you what to do or people are, are there are all these unwritten rules that uh, the visitor runs, runs afoul of. <laughs> so um, this is a long winded way of saying there's also an element of that there with that uh, radio, uh, the radio broadcast. You sort of almost feel as if... Uh, if you know the nonsense, if you're somebody in the know, you know, it's not nonsense. I was reading um, a um, sort of a affectionate kind of popular history of uh, Mad Magazine. Interestingly, kind of uh, another 60s, uh, you know, uh, but uh, there's this uh, running in joke they had about, was it uh, never do a roser, but uh, uh, it was basically, it was a line from a Kinks song which, because it was Cockney slang, you know, was, uh, um, well, the Kinks intended it to be sort of deliberately a little opaque, uh, but then uh, some comedy writer in New York heard it. It was even more, it just sounded like complete nonsense. So he just uh, started working this in. And then before long, it became this massive inside joke for everybody in Mad. And uh, then it just kind of, and nobody knew what it meant. And eventually somebody found out what it actually meant. But... You know, at which point they were sort of like, well, actually, we don't care anymore because it's taken on a significance beyond what the words actually mean. <laughs> so let's talk about Mary Morris's mm. number two. So up until this point, from the beginning of an episode, there's always been, I think, a male number two. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in some, it's been revealed that yeah. there has been uh, either a number two working alongside them, who turns out to be female, or the actual person in charge was mm -hmm. actually a female number two. But here it starts off with a female number two. Now, this is an interesting thing, I think, because uh, McGowan obviously never wants to include um, female characters as romantic leads mm -hmm. for number six. And I think it w it then forced McGowan, Mark Steen, maybe just the whole creative team to work out how they would include interesting female characters. Mm -hmm. And that does happen a lot during the series. But here we have the inclusion of um, almost a completely flipped mm -hmm. uh, gender reversal of what's taking place in mm -hmm. the... Uh, in the way that the village is structured and how yeah. it's um, run, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your thoughts on, on that? Now, you've also got the further feminization and the, the, the day supervisor is also a woman and also you kind of get to a lot more focus on the women in the village, the maids and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you could bring back to what you were saying about the fairy tales in a way, you know, if you're uh, riffing on that. And also, I mean, one of the general themes of the prisoner that keeps coming in and out is sort of nursery culture if you like coming in in once upon a time and uh, 
also in the kind of general infantilization of the, uh, you know, one of the things we uh, talked about a lot in Fallout is the kind of uh, the prisoner as childhood in some ways that you talk about Freud before the broadcast started. And there is a kind of a Freudian um, childhood in being around a, uh, in a society where everybody knows everything about you and may even know more about you than you know about yourself. And so arguably, in a way, that's something kind of maternal, you know, the relationship of the child to its mother at a, when the child's in a very infantile state. And uh, so that kind of comes to the fore, I think, when you've got a kind of an episode which is fairy tale and in which, uh, you know, the people looking out for the prisoner are female. And so there's this maternal aspect, though, having brought that out, of course, uh, Mary Morris is not a very maternal uh, number two. She's a number two exactly like every other number two, uh, which is also interesting in a few ways. I mean, first of all, it then brings up this uh, kind of curious uh, bisexual, you know, because because of McGowan's anti-romance uh, thing, that means that romance gets kind of very subtly stated. But that all further means that when you've got a female number two who's competing for the prisoner's attention you know, with the observer, you've got this kind of bisexual love triangle going on between the three of them, seemingly, you know, as I said, because it's very subtle, you don't have to read it that way. But um, it's interesting that because of the subtlety of romance and the prisoner, it's how it reads. But also you've got kind of an exploration of uh, femininities and female-male relationships. Um, the things that's been interesting me a lot lately, actually, is how um, cross-gender friendship working relationships, non-romantic relationships, are played out in telefantasy, which has kind of been brought to the fore recently by the uh, cross-gendering of uh, the Master in Doctor Who with uh, uh, being, uh, coming with Missy. And I think one of the really significant things that isn't often talked about is that uh, it really literally made no difference. You know, it's not that it didn't make a difference because, you know, she wasn't, you know, but uh, the Doctor treated the master the same way, whether male or female. And it's similar with Mary Morris as number two, you know, kind of she is number two, you know, she could be a male number two and she plays it. She does uh, the dialogue, you know, obviously is written for number two, whoever's in the role, um, but McGowan treats her like every other number two. She does not choose to adapt or interpret the role. You know, she cross dresses as Peter Pan and she, uh, wears the village's kind of androgynous uh, uniform uh, as number two. So uh, you've got, uh, I think, you know, as well as bringing out uh, aspects of femininity, you've got also got aspects of questioning gender and cross-gender relations. There's a, there's a further reference to sort of women in power mm. during the... Um, the carnival itself mm. when the maid is dressed as Elizabeth first yeah. and then and then gets to sit on the, yeah. the sort of jury mm -hmm. and uh, the observer is Cleopatra yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there is and there's a lot of that and again you know um, Elizabeth is uh, and Cleopatra are both interesting for being female monarchs at a time that uh, when that was controversial you know for both uh, well it wasn't so much in Egyptian society because there had been uh, Actually, a lot more female pharaohs than a lot of people think, uh, but it was they were still numerically uh, very small. And Elizabeth, you know, she was uh, literally, she was only either the second or third British monarch. And the reason we're not sure if she's the second or the third is because Matilda was so controversial that uh, nobody's really sure whether to count her as a Queen of England or not. 
And yet, interestingly, and again, building on that, you know, she was um, preceded and uh, followed by a real spate of female monarchs for Britain. You know, if you sort of look, you know, you've got male, 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 male. Then you've got Jane Grey, Mary, Elizabeth, uh, then, uh, you know, various kerfuffles around Stuarts and Cromwell and Stuarts again. And then you start getting Mary II, Mary III, and, you know, you've got another uh, 70 years, blink of an eye in British history in Victoria. So you almost kind of get uh, an explosion of female power in the monarchy. And so uh, having her playing Queen Elizabeth is, again, picking up on this kind of explosion of feminine power in the village, you know. We've had men, 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 men. Then suddenly we've got Queen Elizabeth, and suddenly everybody's a woman. You know, the number two's a woman. The, the, you know, every you know, we're, it's just a transformation. Talking about the costumes that people mm. wear at the carnival, it's mentioned early on that the costumes get chosen for people mm. by by well, the the, mm. the other people in the village, yeah. or it's, it's not really explained exactly how that choice takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody else is either dressed as a historical character. Um, who has been dead a reasonable amount of time, mm-hmm. or a fictional character, mm-hmm. and yet number six is given the only choice yeah. is to dress as himself. Yeah, um, is is this sort of suggesting that he he himself no longer really exists, or is a, a concept rather than a person? Well, I think there's a lot of readings you can do on that. You know, one is that uh, it's almost a playful uh, nod. You know, saying you know this is a TV show you're watching. <laughs> Number six is as much a character uh, or uh, as uh, uh, anybody else. And there's also, uh, as you said, some of them are historical figures. It's perhaps almost the questioning of time that crops up a lot in uh, The Prisoner. You know, is The Prisoner even almost a historical figure? Could it be that we're now 50 years down the road and uh, The Prisoner is as much a historical figure as he is to us today, in a sense? Um, or it could, as you say, be that he's timeless, that he's identityless. You know, he is a cipher. He is every man productions. He is every man. So, and he's a number, you know. So you've got the idea that maybe he is a cipher, that he is every man. And if you think about it, every man himself is a, a fictional character, you know, in the uh, every man play. So a lot of things that happen in The Prisoner are, uh, seem to be about number sixes, uh existence within the village but Mm -hmm. this is the first episode where i got a sense that the village was making a conscious effort to erase his existence from the rest of the world Mm -hmm. Um, there are lots of conversations that are taking place about you know actually Mm -hmm. about the nature of existence anyway within that but the fact that they deliberately want to send out a message to the rest of the world that six is dead is dead Mm -hmm. um how do you think that that concept plays into the As with a lot with The Prisoner, you know, there's multiple readings and uh, I've recently been watching a lot of Callan and I saw an interesting parallel with, I mean, this is, it's totally played straight as a spy story, but um, the episode, that'll be the day. Um, um, Well, it starts off with Callan's funeral is the thing, you know, and um, Lonely, his uh, kind of friend informant, uh, finds, sees his obituary and is shocked and so goes to the funeral and the funeral, at the funeral the, the man the vicar describes is really not Kellen, you know, he talks about a gentle man who worked for the civil service all his life and, and yet all of Kellen's colleagues in the civil service are there and then 
the twist uh, or kind of the, the, the leaping off point into the story uh, after Lonely basically says there's something up here and I'm going to investigate is that uh, Kellen is actually um, a, a, a spy mission in East Germany went wrong and Kellen is now in the Lubyanka. Uh, but because uh, the civil, uh, the uh, MI6 have basically said he's, you know, the Soviets have him, he's lost, you know, we'll never get him back. And if we do get him back, you know, he's useless as a spy. And, uh, you know, chances are they'll kill him or break him or anyway. So they, they, they erase him, you know, they kill him. They uh, make him, he is legally dead. He is, uh, there's an obituary, he's buried, you know. And then, of course, you know, because the series carried on for several series after that, Kellen uh, does come back from the Lubyanka in a uh, prisoner, a fortuitous prisoner exchange. But it's, first of all, why I'm here is because, you know, there's echoes of that. You know, this seems like something that would really be SOP in a uh, spy culture. So if you're doing the straight reading that the prisoner, uh, the prisoner is a spy and he's been captured and they're, you know, from a, that's perfectly in keeping, you know, either... MI6 or else the Russians, you know, uh, don't want people to know that uh, there there is this compromised agent in this secret location. So he is uh, convincingly killed and in a sense socially dead because, again, the uh, the Callan story had knock-ons because he was uh, effectively useless as a spy. He then had to kind of change his role and become uh, a spy master rather than a spy. So, you know, there... And even within the prisoner, there is this uh, this social death, you know, kind of his, uh, uh, he himself is not physically dead, but he's socially dead to the world. And if he ever does come back from uh, the village into the uh, the rest of the regular world, there will be a reckoning. And there's also a metaphysical reading. You know, there's lots of people who've read uh, uh, Dance of the Dead as being about death, you know, that uh, the prisoner literally dies. And Orfe, you know, as we were bringing up, but Orfe is also about death. There is the sense that uh, the, uh, it could even be about, you know, uh, somebody dying and kind of making a journey into the afterlife or the next life through uh, uh, this ritual, as it were. There's a lot of references in the episode to what are the means of communication between the village and mm -hmm. everywhere else. So at one point, number six questions where all of the, the milk mm -hmm. and the ice cream yeah. comes from. And of course, you've got that telex machine, which seems to mysteriously work yeah. at the end, even though it's had all mm -hmm. its guts ripped out. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the the means of communication that that come through in the form of the dead body washed up on the mm -hmm. on the beach and the, the, the nonsensical messages mm -hmm. on the radio and he then attempts to communicate back with the outside world by sending the dead body back again yeah. um it's it does have those echoes of this being so otherworldly that the, the the only way you can communicate with the rest of the world or with the rest of life is through these slightly um mm. mystical macabre uh, ways. Yeah. Well, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. So yeah. picking up on the themes of death and the idea he's dead, you know. Mm. Communication with the dead is, uh, well, impossible, largely impossible, <laughs> probably totally impossible, but uh, if it is uh, possible at all, it is uh, surreal, disjointed, and so forth. So there is perhaps this idea of the uh, a dead person or a dreaming person trying to communicate with uh, the world but at the same time getting out of the straight spy story there is kind of the isolation of uh, the spy of uh, of the prisoner literally you know prisoners uh, 
trying to uh, slip messages out and so forth. Uh, you know, the, uh, you see, you know, prison camps and so forth. Uh, you know, you, some of the artifacts are people just trying to get messages out to the outside world and uh, not having any idea of what's going on in the outside world, but thinking maybe there's somebody out there who will rescue us. And also, just when we're talking about it here, though, it made me think a little bit, actually, of the the post-apocalyptic genre of uh, fiction and movies. Uh, in a way, you know, and this being the 60s when the fear of the bomb was very real, you know, there's no guarantee that there uh, is an outside world anymore. You know, a dead body washes up on the beach, you know, uh, would you want to run a Geiger counter over that dead body? <laughs> um, so, and... Um, you know, is the, the broadcast, is it a real broadcast or is it, again, another example of nonsense signals in on the beach, you know, kind of the last human outpost in Australia gets quite excited because they're getting suddenly, you know, they're getting radio signals on a cha an American channel. So they uh, launch a huge expedition and they go out to see if there is actually anybody still alive in America. And they find out that uh, a Coke bottle you know, was sort of rocking back and forth on a, uh, a lever in a, uh, a radio, an old military radio station. Uh, but in doing so, it is transmitting words because, you know, uh, mostly nonsense, but every so often a word will come out just randomly. So, you know, there's another explanation for the gibberish uh, radio messages as well. Maybe it's, uh, maybe we're in um, the post-apocalyptic world of on the beach and some machine is just kind of transmitting wildly with no uh, idea what it's doing. So let's also talk about the, uh, well, so one mm -hmm. concept that comes up a lot is the idea of doubles in oh, the yeah. of the prisoner. And here we have the black cat. Oh, yes. So there are situations where the black cat seems to jump locations quite easily. Mm -hmm. and there is an indication that not only the cat, but even, even number two seems to have the ability just to be yeah. in various places at different times. Well, you know, as a cat owner myself, I can say they do sometimes uh, uh, seem to have the powers of teleportation. <laughs> you know, the, and you're convinced the cat's outside, and you're yelling and you're yelling and you're yelling, and then he sort of strolls up along and uh, peers down the top of the stairs going, you're looking for me. <laughs> so, you know, playful reference. But at the same time, you know, there is the question of what the cat is and what the cat represents in The Prisoner. And if we're looking at something that's uh, surreal and or even spiritual, you know, uh, yeah, then, um, you know, the cat might be a ghost. It might be a familiar. It might be uh, something that could literally appear in two places at once. Um, and it could, well, the cat throughout the series often parallels number two. You know, it's almost like it's number two's eyes and ears. Mm -hmm. and I believe it's in this episode, isn't it, where the prisoner actually refers to that, that he suggests that the cat is watching him and the cat is a spy. Well, again, you know, cats do seem to uh, seem to be recording all we do. <laughs> and uh, in, in a surreal... And uh, again, we're coming back to fairy tales, aren't we? Puss in Boots, you know, the idea that uh, the cat might be going off to number two and telling tales about the prisoner. Yeah, and I'm sure that there must be all sorts of bizarre real-life spy stories in which they've attempted to use animals to mm. actually spy on people or convey messages or do all sorts of strange stuff. Yeah, well, I think it'd be uh, it'd be a bit of a disaster using a cat because <laughs> they don't really have much of a homing instinct and they do very much do their own thing. But then again, you know, I'm 
not all that much of an expert on uh, the uh, spy stories. Um, the only animal stories I can think of involve dogs and pigeons in that regard. Mm. But, you know, not impossible. And, you know, if uh, yeah, there, there might be other ways in which they'd... Uh, um, they they might come in handy as a signaling device or as something to uh, use the one-time pad encryption. You know, kind of uh, what time the cat wakes you up in the morning is the basis for today's one-time pad, you know. Uh, reminds me of that, that John Finnemore sketch mm. where they, the, the World War Two squadron, where they train cats to fly the planes and then the cats steal the planes and go off because they have no interest in fighting yes. for the humans. <laughs> I can believe that. Or the cat, uh, you could have a cat that's uh, specially trained to intercept spy pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the I like the idea of, of the black cat as um, a, a, a sort of symbol of the supernatural. Mm. And it's interesting to me that it appears in an episode where you have a lot of women in positions of power mm. in the village and its association with witchcraft yeah, yeah. and the, the, the sort of fearful association of women mm. power with witchiness, which mm. kind of persists. But the, the role was originally written for number two. It was originally going to be yeah. male. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it was changed that much no. when, when it was cast. Again, one of the interesting things about... Um, writing in the 60s and 70s that is that a lot of the better female roles are ones that were cross-gendered mm. so uh, you know in, in um, the avengers you know originally uh, you know when honor blackman came in she was taking over you know a male role and a lot of the scripts were barely rewritten and similarly terry nation actually said that uh, the one way he could actually convincingly write women you know by his own admission he admitted he wasn't very good at writing female characters if he was thinking of them as female but if you wrote the role as male and then kind of flipped the, uh, he could he could write convincing women. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> but you've got um, a lot. Again, it it adds, it adds and it doesn't add. I mean, in the sense, it does mean that because they were uh, writing number two as a man originally, that they don't kind of get into a sort of a the kind of stalling on gender that you would expect. They're not going, oh my god, number two's a woman. They're just writing number two, and then whoever plays it plays it. Um, same time you you bring up witchcraft and witchery and yeah certainly cats are associated they could and if the cat is number two's eyes then she could uh, if you see number two as a witch you know uh, could it could be her familiar and at that you know because of the cross-gendering what you get is a woman who is um, in some ways kind of hits the witchy uh, stereotype because she's uh, an older, powerful woman who knows a lot and and is on her own. She's not married. She's and uh, the fear of witches was a fear of women who were powerful, knowledge wise, living on their own um, outside of male social control. So, uh, to talk a bit about witchcraft anthropologically, um, the existence of witch panics is interesting that way because um, such women can live perfectly normally in a community most of the time. You know that. Uh, they're considered a little odd. Maybe people are a little afraid of them, but, uh, you know, they're kind of uh, a normal expected part of uh, village life. It's uh, when something else starts to happen that you start getting witchcraft panics um, in, the, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But that's uh, part of a general pattern. You know, pogroms and other uh, things are all situations where, you know, kind of there's a wider anxiety. There's things people can't control socially, so they look around for somebody who might be kind of tolerated in normal times but is a menace mm. 
And um, so, you know, getting back to uh, the village, if you take the idea that number two is in some, uh, some ways a witch, you know, then um, you've got the inversion of the social order. This is where the outsider rules, you know, the witch, the crypto-lesbian, you know, is... Uh, the boy man, uh, the boy man, woman, when she's as, addressed as Peter Pan, you know, is uh, is ruling. Again, with Dance of the Dead, one thing is it's almost like it, it'll. It's very close to the word Day of the Dead. I actually have a bad habit of uh, if I'm not thinking of writing the episode title Day of the Dead and having to correct myself. It's just why I'm still continually uh, hesitating. It's it's like I always. You know, want to uh, mix up the titles of Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, and Living in Harmony, because mm-hmm. they both seem, you know, it seems like the, the wrong episode got, each episode got, <laughs> should have the other's title. But, you know, with um, this one, you've you've got uh, and the costume ball, you know, you've also got a carnival going on. And the thing is, Halloween, carnivals, the Day of the Dead, there are times when the social order is reversed mm-hmm. for a short time, you know, to let out that tension, to let uh, let the witches run free. And also to let out the uh, um, all the tensions of society, misrule. Hmm. So um, you know there there is uh, that as well. That in um, having this uh, female number two, who is a witch, who is uh, crypto lesbian, who is uh, and then who uh, becomes symbolically other people, and then everybody becomes other people. There is this idea that kind of this it, we are perpetually in Halloween. We're perpetually in carnival. If for this episode of the of the of the prisoner, I also like the idea of when when they're dressed in when when all the villagers are dressed in costumes mm. and decided that the the costumes are chosen for them by the people. It's it's never pointed out by by the villagers themselves that actually the clothes they wear the rest of the time, the village attire. Mm has also been chosen for them by other people. That's yeah. not their regular clothes. And it's also a costume. Yeah. Uh, it's it's something that's kind of hard to um, think about when you're uh, kind of approaching the 60s superficially in that uh, so much of what we think of as 60s culture isn't. You know, if you uh, look, we look at the prisoner now and we think of it as very 60s, but you look at, uh, you, then you look at archive footage of people in the street and they're not dressed like that at all. <laughs> So, uh, you know, the people in the village are also wearing costumes every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted, I'm glad you went back to that because, um, again, um, the uh, idea of the costumes being chosen by other people is another thing that uh, go, is going back to childhood in a way. Mm-hmm. And very, particularly very, very young children because uh, up until, uh, you know, a certain point, a, chi- a child gets no say in what it wears at Halloween or Carnival or the... Uh, um, whatever their society's dressing up uh, uh, day is, you know, the parents dress them. Hmm. Um, and uh, in other societies, even after the child has an opinion, you know, there is still a kind of, you know, you're going in this costume and that, that in some hmm. places. So there is that, uh, again, that element that sort of a mysterious, uh, we hope benign other force is directing the lives of all the people in the village. Because again, you know, there's always the, question in the village of who are the prisoners and who are the wardens you know uh, it's quite possible that uh, all the other people dressing up are also prisoners and they're also the things are, are being chosen and directed for them as much as for uh, for number six how do you think the role of the observer is working in this episode because it seems it seems that in other ones we haven't seen a mm-hmm. you know a direct observer mm-hmm. of anyone mm-hmm. um and here, um, 
her role is is not just um, working for the village as the observer, but there, but like you said at the beginning, there is this uh, sort of pseudo love triangle that does mm-hmm. develop, which works in this episode really only because there is a female number two mm-hmm. as well, and there's a lot of tension that takes place between number two and the observer, uh, the observer's um, slightly conflicted response to what she's supposed to do in her role monitoring number six as well. How does that? How does that play into things? Uh, it's something as a theme that very much interests me, actually, on a professional and academic level, because uh, in anthropology, when we do field work, we do what we call participant observation. And um, unlike um, more interview-based methods of qualitative research, uh, this does mean you get in- involved in people's lives a lot more. And um, frequently, you know, it emotionally involved in people's lives. I know some people who've... Um, you know, fallen in love and gotten married on their field work with people who they're ostensibly observing. Um, I did uh, not me, but uh, you know, I still have very good friends from of twenty years standing from when I did my first field work, and uh, you know, relationships do continue. Um, so I think having the observer as being so emotionally involved with the prisoner is in some way bringing up uh, this, and it's also in some ways non accidental. This is coming up now. I don't know how or uh, contemporarily to the prisoner. I don't know how much uh, McGowan, Mark Steen, Tom Glenn and the crew were aware of this, but um, um, around about the same time in the late 60s, there was a big controversy about um, that sort of uh, field work and the ethical implications of it, because uh, it had been sort of brought home to people very uh, keenly because of the Vietnam War. What happened was in the 50s, uh, the US government uh, anticipating that there was going to be a war in Southeast Asia at some point soon, which wasn't too hard to guess, you know, uh, if you see the Quiet American and uh, other Grand uh, Grand Green books about the period, and also when you think about China's imperial ambitions in the Southeast Asia at the time. um, So what they did was they funded a lot of Southeast Asian research. And then when the Vietnam War did break out, they actually uh, used that research and often in very uh, odd ways, like uh, uh, one real sticking point was uh, somebody's research, which was this ostensibly utterly boring story about about agriculture, rice cultivation. But it turns out the one tribe cultivate, uh, you know, their rice paddies in one, uh, like this, you know, pattern, and another cultivate it like that pattern. And of course, in the Vietnam War, one tribe was friendly and one tribe wasn't, so they used it as bombing references. And this brought up a huge controversy within anthropology specifically, but spilling over into any other social science, because psychology as well was having similar issues with things like uh, uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment and other uh, things adjacent to the prisoner there, you know, and other uh, social experiments where people were saying, wait, you know, there's... This is uh, this is not you know this may be bringing out great social results, but this is effectively uh, informant abuse, and so the social sciences were kind of working out ethical guidelines, and part of it was uh, to do with kind of how do we maintain that boundary, to what extent do we maintain that boundary, what uh, is legit, what isn't, and uh, you know I know one um, the account of one anthropologist who did field work and fell in love with one of her informants. Uh, what she wound up doing was just kind of um, acknowledging the relationship and then kind of removing the partner from informant status, you know, just kind of, uh, okay, right at this point, you're no longer the subject, you're part of my life. 
And yet equally, some of the best inform uh, anthropologists I know have been people who've been married to people from another culture and go to that other culture and then they observe it, you know. And so naturally their partner is going to be uh, part of that. So um, the role of the observer, I'd say, is kind of sparking off that uh, ethical dilemma of, uh, you know, of observation. I'm also, right now, I'm reading a lot of Christopher Isherwood. Actually, because just thinking suddenly it's relevant, because there is uh, that as well. Escherwood's the guy who wrote the uh, what later became Cabaret, you know, the Berlin novels. And what they're based on is his, um, in the 1920s, he went to Berlin to kind of uh, do a, um, the, tw the, the 20s equivalent of the gap year, if you've heard, you know, sort of uh, knock around Berlin with not much money, uh, you know, giving English lessons and just kind of uh, trying to make it as a writer. And um, a, a metaphor that he gets into early on in his writing about Berlin is I am a camera, you know, which is title of one of the films I span off from it, observing. And um, the journey through the Berlin novels is kind of his journey from being a dispassionate observer of what's going on to realizing that he can't be a dispassionate. He tries to kind of record what's going on and not and get involved. And yet gradually through it, he starts to come to realize that... Uh, you know, uh, the rise of Nazism is uh, hurt, literally hurting people around him, people he uh, cares for and sort of getting um, into conflict. I've sort of got about three quarters of the way through the book to a, a section called the uh, uh, the Landowers. And this is interesting because early on in the story, you know, in his kind of camera phase, he describes uh, one of his um, English pupils who is Jewish and from a very wealthy family in a way that's... Uh, you know, it's not, it, it's it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not friendly. You know, it is sort of um, a little bit well, one remove. He doesn't dislike her and her family, but he does sort of uh, make a little bit of fun of their, uh, you know, their wealth and their uh, their detachment from the uh, the squalor around them because they can afford, you know. The, and uh, But then in the Landowers, you know, he said that, you know, they're from the same class. They're actually friends with this uh, in, uh, pupil of his and then his landlady makes a disparaging anti-semitic remark about the uh, Landauer family because they own uh, the, a uh, big Berlin department store and at this point in this Christopher fictional Christopher but based on real Christopher kind of gets irked enough though he li likes his landlady generally to say how dare you they're personal friends of mine and then he goes and basically knocks on the Landauer's door and says hello we've got uh, mutual friends in common and makes friends with them mm. literally because you know he's kind of waking up to uh, so where this is going, again, you know, the prisoner has a lot to say about prejudice and observation. And so there is this element of, uh, you know, when do you, when is it ethical, you know, not just when is it ethical to uh, the other, fl the flip side of the observation, if you like. You know, on the one hand, if you get too involved, you run the risk of harm and harming your informants. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes if you if you're dispassionate, if you stand by, if you uh, become a camera, mm. then you're also putting people at risk because you're not, you know, you're not looking at the prejudice the Jews are facing in 20s Berlin, even though they're rich. You're not looking at the uh, atrocities that are going on around you or you're not engaging with them. You're not doing anything about them. Mm. And indeed, the Observer only um, sort of breaks through the, the shell of that when he gets the death sentence passed on yeah. him. So prior to that, she was giving her testimony as a witness mm -hmm. and acting as a prosecution and in accordance with the rules. And then at the point where she realises that actually this 
seems like is actually going to happen, mm-hmm. and, he's, and he's having the death sentence passed on him. At that, at that point, she kind of breaks out of her role as mm-hmm. as his observer and as a prosecutor, and shows how she actually feels. Yeah, you've got the shock element there, haven't you? You know, just the final final shock that breaks through the shell. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also flipping on to uh, psychoanalysis as well, and the psychoanalysis element of the prisoner that. Uh, Sometimes, whether physically or emotionally, it can take a real shock to break through. It's not also worth remembering with the prisoner and its spy elements that, of course, it was based on this, uh, wasn't it? Based on this uh, kind of hospital-like situation where the uh, airmen were uh, put in very, very nice surroundings and uh, kind of cajoled and uh, coddled to uh, into giving up their secrets. Um, but in a sense, that's. Uh, there's an element of post-traumatic stress that was undoubtedly also playing a part in that very same setup, but also would have been playing out in other um, sorts of areas uh, with, uh, and still going on in the 60s, with traumatised people from uh, World War II, the Korean War, various other little bits of Cold War. And so in a sense, there's almost the sense that uh, the prisoner psychologically, you know, sort of has to die and be reborn. He has to become a new man. Um, through this analysis process, but he sort of has to. Uh, it's the shock, the liter- uh, the figurative death that uh, through which he is reborn, through which he does kind of reach this psychological breakthrough and re-engages. Go back to your point, actually. I think mm-hmm. it's interesting that although we've spoken about the observer and her role working for the village and then breaking that a little bit at the end of the episode... Isn't that quite similar to what number 24 does in The Schizoid Man? Mm, yeah. Because arguably she yeah. is also an observer yeah. or, or yeah. working in that capacity. Yeah, and then when she talks way. at the end yeah. And, yeah. and says to him that she was, well, yeah. she wouldn't have gone that far if she had to do it again. Yeah. It's, a, it's a similar idea. You've got a lot of that, though, also in uh, Free For All, you know, uh, uh, where at the end number two reveals herself and speaks. Mm. You know, but speaks for the first time. But she had been sort of following the prisoner observing mm. You've got that with, uh, you know, the prisoner uh, generally, though, you know, the the surreal, the um, postmodern aspect of it uh, involves a lot of uh, fourth wall breaching, both kind of knowing, you know, and uh, also kind of more subtle, you know, in a way the doubles uh, are a sort of a fourth wall breaching or, you know, the cat's mysterious powers of teleportation or possibly duplication are a fourth wall breach in a sense because you know you may not think about it or notice it the first time but then you think hang on how'd the cat get there Mm. and it actually takes you out of it because you have to think no those scenes were not filmed at the same time you know uh, there was a break in filming maybe the first the second scene was actually filmed first but you know the cat and the presence of the cat in both gives it away Mm. so um, it's part of uh, the fourth wall breaches and the, um, the, the the chaos at the end, the death, and then everybody sort of chasing through the house is another of these. Uh, it's, it's a common trope of uh, late 60s film that uh, to breathe, breach the fourth wall at the end. Think of things like Our Man Flint or, you know, at least one of the Flint movies, and I think both, that ended with a great big uh, rush through uh, this and... Uh, Casino Royale and uh, What's New Pussycat and lots of uh, The Magic Christian, just about everything seemed to almost, uh, there's almost a, a trope of where people just kind of uh, reach almost, the, 
well, it's almost summed up best by Monty Python themselves. They uh, said, you know, how did you get this surreal style where sketches don't really end? They just kind of get to a certain point and then somebody turns to camera and says, and now, or, uh, you know, and they said that because they couldn't, they literally couldn't finish their sketches, they would just kind of take them as far as they could and then just sort of say, okay, end it there. <laughs> so, you know, you've... Uh, there's a trope and so something that also the prisoners viewers or the astute viewers you know maybe not everybody but the film literate viewers would be aware of at the time that they're watching it so there is almost kind of an acknowledgement there you know with that rush through that's almost like 60s film language for the fourth wall is breached everybody is running through the establishment dressed in funny clothing you know any minute now Burt Bacharach will start singing or uh, you know the, a rocket will go off which of course again you know another one actually thinking of it is of course the magical mystery tour which uh, you know I really wish Alan and I had seen before we wrote you know writing a book about any genre is uh, yeah, for the benefit of, re- of listener, your listeners who haven't done this but it's a um, it's an exercise in frustration in some ways because there's always something new you could add you could have added mm. And so you're sitting, we didn't actually write about that particular trope at the time that we uh, were writing the book, but uh, some uh, time later watching films together from the period, Alan and I frequently had moments of, you know, we sort of wish we had. And again, with uh, uh, the Magical Mystery Tour, there's so much in the way of prisoner crossovers, you know, with uh, uh, the butler literally appearing as a wrestler uh, and... uh, sort of bits where they just kind of abandon the plot and then race little cars up and down a, uh, you know, a stretch of abandoned uh, rail th- uh, airstrip, you know, and uh, just go off into fields where there's nothing and then suddenly dress up as animals, you know. There's uh, just this whole surreal Dance of the Dead-like element to the Magical Mystery Tour. But again, there is, it is again part of these one of these 60s things where they basically go, okay, we'll start off looking like we have a plot and then about halfway through we're just going to sort of say, Hey, let's just end it here. <laughs> yeah, the, the episode does have quite an abrupt ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when they're they're in the room and the the telex machine yeah. springs back to life. Was there supposed to be another scene after that that then didn't get shot? There have been stories and not stories and uh, ideas and that, but I would really doubt it because they did actually shoot everything they needed before McGowan decided he didn't want to make the it wasn't uh, it wasn't an incomplete episode and this is again one of the things that uh, we query because uh, another of the McGowan's never actually really explained to anybody at all as far as I know why he decided he didn't like that uh, episode and again why he warmed to it again but one that kind of gets mooted is the fact that in the script um, uh, the observer number two are supposed to dance cheek to cheek and McGo- uh, but uh, but Alan and I especially really don't think that was the case because um, in other cases where uh, sort of intimacy was written into the script in other stories, McGowan would just red pencil it and do a work and do a workaround. And here there, the scene in question is shot. There is a workaround, you know, there's, they're supposed to dance together and then the prisoner steps back. So the observer dances alone instead. So it can't have been that because McGowan could have done a workaround and indeed did do a workaround. So I don't think, and also because there was this very strong trope of the time that, uh, you know, kind of rut, uh, of this kind of, you know, ended here, you know, this uh, everybody runs, everything goes into chaos and we end it here. So in a sense, you know, scene 
from the outside it may be odd but seen from in the uh, tropes of the film of the time it's very much in keeping you know uh, somebody as I said maybe not people who were still desperately hoping the prisoner would turn into something like a normal spy series <laughs> but people who had kind of uh, abandoned it and gone on for the ride and were familiar with the avant-garde film of the period and even you know the relatively popular film of the period would kind of have this sense that the story must be at an end because everybody has run through dressed in costume and the telex has done something weird and uh, we're now you know we're at 50 uh, we're 50 minutes to the hour end <laughs> the, there's another surrealist work um, from later and textually the codex seraphinatus um it's um yeah i rec you know google it listeners if you have <laughs> if you're not familiar with it because it's uh worth it if you're a fan of uh, surrealist uh, art and literature and what it is it's an i think it was an italian either italian or spanish um, artist who uh, did a book which is full of uh, incomprehensible text literally incomprehensible it's made up writing and surreal pictures you know just sort of strange things like a horse that seems to be part car or uh, <laughs> you know a uh, human being uh, a, a classification of what seems looks like a classification of uh, um, human skin colors and eye colors and uh, face types except no they look like no human being on earth the colors uh, you know purple green people noses jutting out people with cuckoo clocks in their foreheads you know just uh, and getting weirder and weirder and lots of people have kind of uh, hashed this over and kind of uh, speculated on the meaning and tried to decipher it and the artist himself as McGowan like said very little about it but one of the things he has said which kind of gives a clue is that it's intentionally undecipherable because he said what he wanted to do was to artistically replicate the experience of childhood because he said if you're a child and you open an encyclopedia if you're before you can read it's like that, you know, you see a lot of words you can't understand, though there's clearly a sense to them and, uh, you know, a rhythm to them that maybe you could figure out if you, and there are pictures of showing things that you don't understand and why this and why that and what's this uh, strange object and who this weird person and what they're doing to each other, you know, so um, if you're talking about, you know, the surrealist aspect being a part of uh, childhood, then there's that as well. Maybe it's just kind of the adult world viewed from uh, a, a child's unknowing, unthinking and uh, kind of all accepting perspective. So thanks, Fiona, for joining us. It's been great talking to you about Dance of the Dead. Thank you. And not Day of the Dead. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to be doing that too now, aren't you? Yes. I'm now just imagining Dance of the Dead as being the film that Romero never made by <laughs> zombies. Um, yeah, th thanks again for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure too. Thank you very much. Information. Information. Big thanks again to Fiona for joining us. It was absolutely fabulous talking to her all about this episode. And if you want to hear more from Fiona, you can find our previous chat with her in our 50th anniversary episodes from last September. But up next, we've got our usual roundup from Rick Davey of the Mutual website with the news roundup of everything that's happening in the world of the prisoner. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. In 1990, journalist Howard Foy conducted the last in-depth interview regarding the prisoner, which Patrick McGowan would conduct. 
and in June of this year the interview will be released on CD for the first time. Lasting 45 minutes, the disc is available for pre-order at a discount from www.coitmedia.co.uk with information and links on the Unmutual website. In other CD news, the soundtrack to the 1980s dinosaur movie Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, which starred Patrick McGowan, has been re-released. Folk interested in the new The Prisoner trading card set from Unstoppable Cards can get 15% off with a special offer code. Order from the Unstoppable site using the code UNMUTUAL18 UNMUTUAL18 and buyers will receive 15% off, plus an exclusive Unmutual website promotional card, unavailable elsewhere. There's been a change of guest for September's The Eternal Village event in Seattle, taking place on September the 9th. Jane Merrow will now not be attending, with Annette Andre now confirmed as the main guest star for the event. And finally, fans of Nicholas Briggs will want to check out a recent episode of The Benji and Nick Show, co-presented by Nick and Benji Clifford of Big Finish. The subject matter of which was the Prisoner episode, The Chimes of Big Ben. The episode also includes a chance to win two tickets to the forthcoming June Not A Number event at Elstree Studios. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. Many thanks, Rick, for your uh, news update. We look forward to them every couple of weeks. And also, it's getting very close now, but I think in June, I think June 23rd, there's going to be the uh, really exciting Not A Number event, which is taking place at Elstree. So we'll be going to that, and we wonder if we'll be seeing any of you there as well, which will be a celebration of Patrick McGowan, not just in The Prisoner, but from a, a career perspective as well, in what would have been his 90th year. So if you want to get in touch with us about this episode or... Anything else you feel like, really? You can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, on Facebook, the group is Time for Cakes Nail, or on our website, which is timeforcakesnail.com. So do drop us a line, let us know what you think about the episodes. Uh, we'd really love to hear from you, and uh, if you do have five minutes, please do also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, because it really does help. So that's it for our episode this time. Please join us again in a couple of weeks where we'll be discussing the episode Checkmate. But for now, from the Tally Ho podcast, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.